Hi, it's Guy here. Welcome to another episode of Creative Forces. Thanks to everyone that's got in touch so far and who's listened to the podcast, of course. Uh, all the likes and subscribes and all the comments. It's great to hear what everyone thinks of it and all those likes and subscribes really help to boost the podcast on the various apps. So thank you to everyone who's got involved. Um, this episode's all about Keith Farrell. Keith's a brilliant writer and director. He's been involved in uh, mainly uh, period drama documentaries over the last few years, but has recently moved into contemporary drama. And his uh, 2017 short film, Rabbit Punch, uh, has done really well. It won Best Short Film at the Omaha Film Festival. It's been screened all around the world at film festivals too. Um, in this interview, you can hear how Keith has had a pretty uh, unusual career path into filmmaking from sports journalism uh, and various other things along the way uh, to get where he is today. Also, he, he talks about why dealing with rejection is a vital skill for a filmmaker and he explains how he gets some of his best ideas and does some of his best script writing work while doing a particular uh, physical activity. I think we have to start uh, the interview just by talking about why we're starting an hour later than planned <laughs> because we were supposed to start an hour ago but you just told me that you overslept this morning so why what were you and you were working late so what were you working on last night? So I was um, working till quite late uh, this morning, last night, this morning, <laughs> yep. um, on a application for the very first Kerry bursary um, fund, short film fund. And Kerry is a beautiful part of Ireland. It's a county in the southwest corner. And they have um, launched a fund to create short films in Kerry that will help sell the county to the world. But it, I've got what I mean. What I mean is that they don't want the stories to be about Kerry or about... No, let me start again. What they don't want the stories to be is like these bland stories. They want exciting stories about Kerry that can cover the dark side of humanity and the bright side of humanity, mm. but that are all set in their county. And <clears throat> Kerry's a really interesting place. It's, 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 it's one of... It's quite cut off from the rest of Ireland in some ways because it's, it's, it's at the far extremity of Ireland. Um, it's stunningly beautiful. It's also probably one of the most creative parts of Ireland. Um, the town of Dingle is famous for a film festival. Uh, the town, the town of Dingle is famous for a music festival, where everybody from Elbow to um, Amy Winehouse played. But they play in essentially. I mean, one time Elbow played in someone's front living room. Right. You know, it's kind of an unusual <laughs> place. Michael Fassbender's from Kerry. It's got a really good track record of creating artists. Uh, but it had no film scheme, so they've created this mm. film scheme. It also has a really well-established and very well-respected film and media school. Um, so I think that's why they decided they, need, they wanted to create this bursary. So it's the first year ever. So we're kind of going into the unknown a little bit because we, we, we didn't know really what, 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 what to apply with. But we had a... Um, I've built up a relationship with a really up-and-coming uh, Austrian scriptwriter who lives just outside Dublin, right. in a place called Kildare, um, in a place called Main. Um, she's a lecturer in the University of Maynute. <clears throat> and she, her boyfriend's from Kerry, and uh, as chance would have it, um, the producer I'm working with, who happens to be my brother, Colin Farrell, not that one. No. Um, he, oh, so there is, he's worked on one of your films, hasn't he? Colin That's Farrell right. has worked I on one of your films. I did have to double check on IMDb when yes. I saw that yes. in the cast he, list. There are two Colin Farrells. There is two Colin Farrells, yes. There is two Colin Farrells working in the media in Ireland. <laughs> it has its advantages for him. Um, when, when he's, he's a locations manager by trade, so often he would be 
on location and when particularly when they go abroad and they see the name Colin Farrell they give him the best hotel <laughs> hotel room because they think it's the Colin Farrell. Is it spelled differently at all? Or nope, is it spelled exact exactly same. the same, right? Yeah, exactly. Can same. you do that though? Don't you, isn't there a rule well, about that? You, well, I mean, you know, what, where did they go back to 1982 when there were two women there was two women in Dublin having a baby around the same time and stop one of them naming their child Colin? But in terms of like equity and things like that, isn't there a rule? Well, he's not he's, he's not an, he's not an, he's not an officially an actor. I just throw yeah. him in because he's cheap. He's actually generally a locations manager. <laughs> so you included him in the cast in one of your films yeah mainly because he's well he was working as locations manager so yeah, right. I, I and I, he, he actually can act <laughs> so I thought oh do you know what you can act and you're a location manager so I don't have to pay you twice so come on board <laughs> perfect <laughs> yeah so it's brilliant yeah so he goes his acting name is Colin D. Farrell Colin Farrell isn't an equity registered actor because there is another Colin Farrell oh. uh, who's an English actor who I think is still alive, and he's probably best known um, from the film A Bridge Too Far, oh, yeah. where Sean Connery has Sean Connery's unit have landed in, in, in the Netherlands, and their gliders are destroyed, and they've no vehicles. And a fellow comes up to Sean Connery and says, do you want a cup of tea? And Sean Connery goes, well, what good will that do? <laughs> and uh, and, and uh, the fellow goes, uh, well, it won't make things any worse. Uh, and that's Colin Farrell, the original Colin Farrell, the actor Colin Farrell. He was so the even, tea offerer. Colin he was Farrell. the tea offerer, yeah. So even Colin Farrell, the famous Hollywood actor, can't register his name with equity because that's already registered with someone else. I see, okay. So who yeah. Knew? Who knew there who were three knew? Colin Farrells? Yeah. So two of the Colin Farrells aren't equity registered, one of them is. You know? <laughs> and neither of them are Irish. And No, they're both Irish. They're two, the the two who aren't registered are Irish, and the other Colin Farrell, who must have Irish roots, <laughs> is English. <laughs> yeah. So what were you working on till late last night, uh, so, early this morning then? So anyway, yeah, so uh, this morning, we the application has to be in today, um, but we, we, as a team, the, writer, the producer, the writer, and myself, decided we need to get everything ready tonight because everyone will be trying to get the application in tomorrow morning. If we can get it in, if we could have got it in, sorry, we decided we need to get everything ready last night because... Everybody will be trying to get their application in this morning, and we want to make sure we were ahead of the game. So that's why we were working late. And the application, the story. Um, so hmm. Tina, the writer from Austria, who's writing a film set in Kerry. Yeah. Um, we, she hadn't. We, she, her boyfriend's from Kerry, and and she was inspired. She had this idea in her head about a child trying to find a, a parrot, but she hadn't quite worked it out properly yet. And she went down to Kerry, and she came back, and she said, "Look, they've got this bursary scheme." Um, and I think I've got the I've got a film script for it, and uh, so she uh, went off and wrote this kind of fantastical, magical, fantastical story about this orphan girl who thinks her parents are still alive, and believes that there's this parrot called Ben Bow, who will take her to see her to her dead parents, and uh, she decides that she needs to kidnap the, the parrot. The parrot's living in this old windmill, hmm. um, and uh, her she's been raised by her uncle, who's um, who's He's a good parrot man, but he's 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 not very good with. He doesn't know how to deal, speak to or deal with children. And anyway, as a kind of bonding exercise, a kind of um, unusual bonding exercise, he decides mm. he's also an alcoholic. I should add, he decides he is going to help her kidnap this parrot. Right. And then at the end of the film, she has to make a choice between saving her uncle's life or grabbing the parrot. And she saves her uncle's life, and she kind of it helps her accept. You know, her parents are never coming back. So it's it, it, it's a magical realism tale. It's it's very much told from a child's perspective. It's a film that will be made for children. Children understand can understand darker things, even if we try to hide them from it as adults. They can, 
Um, and I think, and it, and, and it was written very much from her perspective. She wrote the draft with Kerry in mind. Uh, talked to her, her in-laws, her boyfriend's family, uh, her long-term partner's family, and worked out how it would work and how where it would work. And, um, and so she created this beautiful short film, and mm. uh, and we've put an application in for the for for the Kerry first Kerry bursary film fund, and hopefully we win it. And so um, would you direct that? And I direct it with Colin Farrell producing, not that one. <laughs> uh, the unfortunately named Colin Farrell producing. Um, and Tina, the Austrian scriptwriter, writing an Irish film. Uh, so is that one of several things that you've got on the go at the moment? Yeah. Or is, so what, what else is bubbling away? So I've just finished a, another children. I, my background isn't children's drama, but I've just finished a children's drama about the Irish famine. Mm-hmm. Another cheery subject. The parents of the, the Irish times? famine. Called Hunger Times, yeah. And the Hunger Times is a kind of a magical realism story as well. It's about two kids from the United States who... So the Hunger Times was commissioned by a museum called Ireland's Great Hunger Museum, which is, in the, which is connected to the University of Quinnipiac in Connecticut. Hmm. Quinnipiac's probably best known because it's a very famous for its um, um, opinion polls. Hmm. It's a... Uh, mo- around the time of the elections, you will often see Quinnipiac polls coming out, and it's the university runs those polls. And they're seen as being probably the most even-handed polls. But strangely enough, Quinnipec has also got a lot of connections to Irish America. And one of its former alumni uh, left a collection of artwork that wa- from the 1840s to the present day that related to the famine. And um, they built, a mu- with, with this donation, they built a museum of, his, of this artwork he'd collected. And it's the most extensive collection of artwork to do with the Irish famine. And um, they were bringing the collection, part of the collection, to Ireland for the first time. And they put out a call for a a film for children, a short movie for children that would explain the famine and also would have a connection to the artwork. And I pitched for it, working. Um, I pitched for it with an idea based on two k- kids from the present day going back in time and experiencing the famine, and everything they saw would relate to a piece of artwork mm. in the museum's collection. And we won. We won the pitch um, to make the short, the film, the short film. And um, uh, Hannah Salt, who wrote Rabbit Punch, yep. which you've appeared in, yep. uh, well, your voice has appeared in. Uh, she came on board to write it, and then we shot it last winter. Uh, it was pretty cold. I did feel sorry for one of the kids in particular who plays a famine victim, where he basically was wearing just breeches and, and a shirt, and it was like you know minus three. Oh no! Uh, he's a brilliant young actor called uh, Adam Dolan. I mean, he's got a great career ahead of him. Um, and he was just so fantastic to work with, you know, uh, made my job so much easier as a director. But yeah, we filmed it and then we edited it and it was delivered um, in, gosh, it was actually delivered in March. Um, it hasn't officially been launched. It'll be launched on the 16th of May in Ireland in front of school kids because uh, that's our audience. Mm. Um, <clears throat> um, and then for the collection, the exhibition's actually already started and it's screened as part of the exhibition, but we haven't had an official launch Um and then it will live forever in the museum as so when they've school kids come in, they show the school kids the film and, you know, they give them little packs about, you know, education packs that they can learn more about the Irish family from. So it's for an American audience. Yeah. And our two central characters who go back in time are Americans. And what happens is they go to the museum and they go to a room they're not supposed to. It's a magical room that doesn't exist in, in the museum. And they see, they see a single sculpture and they meet a curator who's like a Doctor Who type figure and she takes them back in time. And they meet a boy called Patrick who's exact who's, ident- who's in an identical position to the statue in the room 
And uh, through Patrick's experiences, they meet Patrick three times over the course of the famine. They meet him in a workhouse uh, when it looks like he's dying. And then they go back mm. a little bit further in time. And they meet him when the family are being evicted from their house by the evil English landlords. Um, and then they meet him uh, two years earlier when the famine just begins, when the potato crop fails. And then they meet him one final time in the United States and we learn that Patrick survived and he became a, he's an immigrant and he's, he's starting his new life in the United States. So, And every time we meet him along the way, we meet, there, there's a painting that replicates that journey, that, that our, our sculpture that replicates that meeting with Patrick for the two kids. And then when they get back to the museum, the curator opens her watch and out of her watch comes these images that are all part of the museum's collection mm. which uh, are are related to the family there's one image that isn't part of the museum's collection but it's it's, it's been exhibited um in the museum and it shows like you know how the artwork relates to the the re real history and hopefully that's explains it for the kids you mm. know it's only 15 minutes long it's quite a short film um but it uh it's and it's you know it's a i suppose it, it was designed specifically it's a very much an educational film unlike what we were working on, which is a film about entertainment, which is a film to entertain kids as well as it doesn't have the same educational no. remit. Although, okay. you know, The Hunger Times is entertaining. You know, the kid, anyway, we, we road test it with children to make sure it works. It's all well through as an adult going, no, this looks really good. And kids being bored after two minutes. So and, and was the title, it. was that a, uh, a reworking of The Hunger Games oh. to try and draw the kids in? For copyright purposes, no. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yes, very much so. <laughs> and so that's the most recent things you've been doing. But also the last year or so, you've been working hard, haven't you? Promoting and going to screenings internationally of Rabbit Punch, the film yeah. that you brought out last year. So just um, tell us about the film, first of all. But then also, you've been all over the place and you've won some decent awards too, haven't you? Yeah, we've been very lucky. We've won a couple of good, good awards and we keep losing to The Silent Child, which won the Oscar. <laughs> um, and um, Chris Overton who's the director of Silent Child is fantastic really good director and a really nice guy which makes it even harder because I really don't want to like him <laughs> <laughs> but you know you turn up at a festival and he'd be there and you'd be like oh no <laughs> well that's also not going to win face palm if you see him <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah yeah but um, but but we bonded on our, our joint love of UFC so you know uh, yeah, so we, we got on very well together and I, I've, enjoy, I've enjoyed his company ever since the first time we worked, met at the Bolton Film Festival where we both won an award they won a social action award and we won the best Northwest short film. Um, but yeah, no, so it's, it's nice, you know, it's, it's, it's been, it's been done. The rabbit punch was kind of another unusual project. My, what I do for a living is I make documentaries. Mm. That's my day job. And when I'm not making documentaries, my, I write proposals and treatments for documentaries, but I've always had an interest in narrative fiction. I've always had an interest in making films, uh, narrative, um, feature films and short films and in um god probably four years ago i was working for the bbc five four years ago wasn't it mm -hmm. yeah something like that so about four years ago i was working for bbc learning and um due to the kind of vagrancies of of uh hot desking i ended up sitting beside uh this woman hannah salt and we got chatting and Hannah said, oh, I'm a rider. And I'm like, oh, yeah. And generally, when someone says you're a rider, they say to you, you're a rider. You kind of raise your eyes to heaven and go, OK. Because <laughs> um, most people who are riders can't actually write. Who claim to be riders can't yeah. actually write. But anyway, I got chatting to Hannah. And uh, she it was very soon became very clear that she's actually a very good rider. She written a play called Corner Man, which had been staged as part of the Manchester Fringe Festival, which is, which is a kind of offshoot of the International, Fili International Festival. And that had gone on to win a 
uh, Best New Playwright Award. And then she'd done a short film um, called Bump, uh, which was had been funded by Northwest Vision, which then now gone, now depart, now disappeared. Northwest Vision, and that had gone on to win awards. And she started on a road to kind of trying to become um, a feature film scriptwriter. And to take, you know, and and uh, long story short, she'd found her way into the BBC. And she kind of stopped writing. So I encouraged her to write a short film. I said, well, you know, have you got a story? And she says, yeah, I've got one story I really want to make. Um, and I said, well, write it and we'll try and get funding. And um, she wrote this really incredible short script. And uh, myself and the producer I was working with at the time, his name is Phil Meacham, um, who's from Bolton. We decided, right, we're going to try and find raise funding and, mm. and make it. And we were very lucky because a group of six guys who are friends of mine, who are big into boxing, kind of knew... Knew the story. It's based on a true story. Um, mm. It's changed. Um, it's it's different to the true story. It's it's not the same as the true story, but it's based on a true story. And they kind of knew that story, and they came together and, and helped us raise the finance to get the money together to make the short film, um, which we did. And then um, we were very lucky that Timeline North um, agreed to edit it for us for free you know um, um, without that we couldn't have, we couldn't you know we can shoot a film but you, unless you can edit it you don't have anything together so mm. Timeline Timeline North um, Charlotte at Timeline North um, supplied the editing facility and, and then, and then um, Sean Roberts who's one of the, who's a freelance editor he agreed to edit it and um, funny enough Sean also edited The Hunger Times I went back to work with Sean again he's a brilliant up and coming young editor <coughs> and we created this and we created this um, short film and um the, the, once you create a, f a short film, you kind of have to start entering into festivals. We had a premiere in Manchester at home, um, and for the cast and crew, and then we started entering into festivals. Home, the venue, rather than your home, just sorry. for anyone listening. Yeah, so, so we had a, 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 in home the um, the theatre and cinema, um, independent theatre and cinema. We had a a premiere uh, for cast and crew, and we started entering festivals. And you were a bit nervous when you entered festivals because. I've, I've had one previous short and you get a lot of rejections and mm. we got a lot of rejections with Rubber Punch but what we noticed that we were getting a lot of traction with US festivals we kept getting into US festivals um, and that led to you know me travelling I think our first film we got in was the Long Beach Independent Film Festival Indie Film Festival and we got nominated for it, Long Beach is a, fil a film festival that's um, run uh, comes out of the un university there at Long Beach but it's very much about um minorities african-american stories and african stories and we got nominated for the what they call the sons sons and fathers award which is basically inspiring stories about mm. young african-american or african males um and uh we didn't win that but we got nominated for that which was nice that was our first festival to get a nomination first festival is good and our next festival we got into was martyrs vineyard international film festival we got nominated for best short there and hannah salt went over to there um, and then, so we kept getting nominated, <laughs> and then we got into Bolton, and we got nominated for Best Northwest Short, and we finally won a won a won a film festival, a Bolton International Film Festival. It was the inaugural Bolton International Film Festival. But Phil, being from Bolton, was very keen mm. that we entered, and we were really fingers crossed we could get in because that was his home festival. But it, as 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 life could be sometimes, <laughs> Phil then got a job in Germany and <laughs> <laughs> ended up working in Germany with all through the film festival. So poor old Phil missed his home festival. Oh, no. <laughs> missed but, this big moment. Missed this big moment. But we were there to collect the award, so that was okay. Myself yeah. and Hannah were there with some of the other crew to collect the award. And then yeah, so then we went on and we just kind of had a run of US film festivals. You know, we got into Savannah Film Festival, which is one of the Oscar 
Run Film Festival. So I, I went over there um, very kindly to people, good people of Savannah and the SCAD Film uh, Savannah Film Festival and um, flew myself over there. And I got to see all the Oscar nominee nominated films, you know, which was brilliant, you know, yep. for free as part nice. of my package, you know. Um, <clears throat> and uh, we lost to The Silent Child. We got nominated for Best Short Film and lost to The Silent Child again. <laughs> Um, how, have you totted up how many times you've yeah we've actually lost three time. times to them but that's okay that's that, you can live with that you know yeah. and they've gone on to win an oscar so that's not too bad yeah. well that's a good thing you you, yeah. you know that it's you know there's something about being beaten by someone who has done something exceptional yeah in the, which in this case it sounds like they have yeah they have no they've done really and uh yeah himself and rachel his his partner um they're both graduates of uh, Hollyoaks. They're both. Oh, yeah, Hol- I remember Hollyoaks. seeing this. Yes, yeah. I remember. And Rachel's from Stoke, so I'm like, I know Stoke's class of the Midlands, but we'll call it Norden. So it's great to see Norden or win an Oscar. <laughs> 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 so you mentioned a bit then that you know before doing Rabbit Punch and uh, the Hunger Times, you much more about documentary making, uh, often sort of period. Reconstruct. Not uh, what's the what's historical docu- drama. Historical, historical docu- drama. Drama. Historical historical docu- docu- drama. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, okay, yeah. so the question is, how did you get into that then in the first place? What what brought you into that world from what you were doing before? Well, it was a, a very unnatural progression because <laughs> my background is in sports journalism. So when I left school at eighteen, I didn't go into university. I did a course at um, one of the what we'd call them here in the UK, colleges. It's, hmm. uh, they're slightly called Collage de Dulag in journalism. And then thanks to that course, I got to work for my local newspaper. And um, although I'm, di- uh, I, I, I'm, 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 um, I'm dyslexic, uh, but my the editor noticed something in me, thankfully, a guy called um, Tony Moore noticed something in me. And they didn't have a sports page in that. It's a local newspaper. It's called the North Side. This is in Dublin. In Dublin, yeah. yeah. So I got to work at my local newspaper in Dublin. Sorry, yeah, I'm from Dublin. So I went I went to Clash to Dulag, and came out, and I got work experience in my local newspaper called the North Side People, which is a brilliant local Dublin paper. And they didn't have a sports section, and Tony Moore, the editor there, saw something in me um, and gave me an opportunity to write um, uh, about Gaelic football which is uh, an Irish kind of cross between, I suppose, soccer and rugby. Mm. And so I started writing Gaelic football uh, for them. And uh, I also then, because you're as a freelance journalist, you kind of write whatever you get. So I, I wrote for magazines. I, I had a bit of knowledge about IT, so I wrote a tech column. And I just basically did whatever work came along. And then later on, I got picked up as a Gaelic football journalist for another local no- newspaper that's no longer in existence called the Northside Weekender. And I did a little bit of work for the Irish Star newspaper. They had a really good weekly pullout, which was just all about Gaelic football. And so I did a little bit of writing for them and mm. basically wrote for whoever and anyone I could. You know what I mean? Um, and we're, as well as doing tech columns for other newspapers and magazines and the whole thing you do as a freelance journalist. Um, and I then went to university. When I was 20, I went to university and uh, did a degree in history and politics. So that's where the history comes from. Why did you decide to do that at that point, by the way? You were already working. So what what was the reason for, what what was the decision for going back to university? Well, I'd, I'd always wanted to go at some stage and I had the I had the grades to go immediately, but I just didn't want to go at 18. Okay. So I decided then that it was a good time to go. So that was always the plan in a way, was yeah. to work. I was always going to go to university. Yeah. Yes, sorry. I was always planning to go to university, but it was kind of nice to get a 
cool job didn't yeah. love working in a bar yeah. you know what i mean and, you know i had one of the coolest jobs in university i was a journalist yeah but it, it did mean some funny decisions because I, I would schedule classes so that i wouldn't interrupt with me going to football matches later on <laughs> and i love all sport i used to i also did a bit of soccer riding as well mm. um and then in um and I also, uh, so uh, yeah, sorry, I was writing as a journalist, but I also wasn't, I decided I wanted to do a bit of traveling as well. So once I finished university, um, I went to Canada on our, the Canadian version of the J1 mm. and did a summer in Canada and got a real buzz from it. Buzz from What's I really the J1, enjoyed it. by the way? The J1 is the um, student visa that allows you to work in America oh, okay. for, for a summer. Right. So there's a Canadian version of that. And I got that and, and worked in Toronto for what a summer. What did you do? I was a car park attendant. <laughs> best job in one of those little sort of um you know cubicle in one of those booths no but yes booth, yeah, yeah well the company i worked for they um as well as the booths i did work in a booth we also had uh, valet parking yeah so I, I valet parked quite a few quite a lot of cars as well i, quite, I really enjoyed valet parking as well because it was one of the you know, rare times you going to get to drive all kinds of cars did you get to that stage that you know you always see in films where someone tosses you the keys and they know you say you know Put it in the usual spot or whatever. Yeah, there was one guy, who, an Englishman, who drove a Lotus Esprit who would <laughs> give me the keys say, don't get caught doing over 90. That's what he would say when he handed you the wow. keys. Yeah. That's an invitation. <laughs> yeah, it is. Isn't it, to 89. I did. Of course, I didn't take the car off the parking lot. No. <laughs> you didn't do... I didn't, Nine, do a, a Ferris Bueller. I didn't do a Ferris Bueller. You know, at least that's what I'm telling my mother. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was a great job though. Was, there was no responsibility. It was really funny, you know, going from the world of having to get deadlines and having to get everything in and, you know, mm. and... The, you know, when I started in journalism, news, the newspapers were still laid out on on boards. You know, they weren't. There was, the, you know, I, I I don't think the paper I worked for had um, any of the front page software that would do that for you. Um, I I think I'm pretty sure that if I remember they still laid it out on boards. Mm. Um, so you you'd go in, you get your copy, and you type it up on the one Mac in the office. You know, like you'd queue journal people waiting to type it up, freelancers waiting to type it up. <laughs> um, I had email, but I, I think the email was I had emailed personally, but I think the email in the newspaper office was pretty. What year would it. this be then? This would be nineteen ninety four. Right. Yeah. So the email was pretty inefficient. Yeah. And so was was ju- just to read. Um, back so up I was nineteen. Slightly. I was nineteen when I worked in it. Was journalism sort of always the dream then when you were at school? I don't think I knew what I wanted to do in school. To be honest, I really hadn't figured it out. You know, it was a kind of, I didn't say I fell into journalism. I think towards the end of the year, my year, my final year in school, when I was studying for my leaving cert, which is the Irish version of the A-levels, my granda, who was, in, who was also in the print business, he'd founded a newspaper, a sports newspaper called The Gaelic. The Gaelic Echo, which was a newspaper that just specialised in Gaelic football and hurling, the other Irish sport. And he had then gone on to found a couple of very successful publishing companies. Um, my granddad was brilliant at setting up businesses. He wasn't so good at running them. Uh, so Did they, they were not- taken on by other people and made successful. Right. <laughs> okay. The Gaelic Echo sadly faded from view, never to be seen again. Right. Um, yeah, so my poor old gran had an up and down existence. One day they were they'd loads of money, the next day they'd nothing. <laughs> but he, he was a real influ- formative influence in my life. And he said, look, if you talk about journalism, I think you'd be a really good journalist. You're a great storyteller. Hmm. And so I, I kind of was like, well, well yeah, I'm not really, I don't want to go to university. This course at Gloucester Dulux seems really interesting. It's not too far from my home. It's in Kulak, and I, I lived in Rohini at the time, which is not far from, from Kulak. So I went there, and um, 
and yeah, and and uh, and I really discovered then I really enjoyed journalism and I really enjoyed writing, which is strange for someone who struggles mm. to spell. But my, I could I could write, you know. And uh, luckily, I, the editor saw that I could write. How even though I can't tell the difference between there, 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 and there. <laughs> How did <laughs> dyslexia affect you at school? Uh, okay, because. Um, I think I got away with it because I wrote so much that I wrote enough to cover <laughs> the, era, the the points I was losing for my spelling. I was getting back because I was writing so much. <laughs> so, for example, like some subjects I really struggled with. Like I struggled with maths. I struggled with physics because mm. I'd, I'd loved I'd loved physics, but I just wasn't good at it. I struggled with technical drawing, and I had a brilliant teacher called Rory Dodd who worked really hard at me to try and get me up the standard. But for some reason, I was okay with English. I was pretty good at English. And I was really good at history, um, really, really good at history. And they kind of carried me through, because mm-hmm. um, you do you do eight subjects for your leaving in Ireland, and then six of them go towards your points for university, which we call co- we uh, we call it college here. So I confuse people saying, "Oh, I go to college. I went to college." <laughs> They're like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> but for university, um, uh, so I was able to get enough. I was able to do enough with the history and the and the English to kind of pull me over the edge to get to university. Mm. Um, and then of course I decided I didn't need to, I didn't want to go to university then, but I had the I had the I had the point I needed to get in. I knew at some stage if I wanted to, I mm-hmm. could always go back. Um so I I decided to defer my entry and, and, and kind of learn a bit about the real world for a while. See, so, and your granddad was a big influence on that, was he? Massive. In terms of yeah. yeah, so yeah what Nick. about your mum and dad? What did they do? So my dad my dad mum and dad are both well see my mum and dad are really grand uh, easy going because they well, okay, I'll think about it start again. My <laughs> mum and dad were quite good in that they always encouraged us to do whatever we wanted to do. They're really they're very quite liberal parents. Um, they came from the hippie generation, so they mm. had this kind of really easygoing attitude. So my mom's attitude is like, whatever, as long as you're happy doing what you're doing, I don't care. You know what I mean? I don't care whether you're straight, gay, you want to live abroad, you want to live at home, whatever you want to do, as long as you're happy doing mm. what you do, and that's all that matters. Um, so they never pushed me. You know, I, you know, as a teenager, like all teenagers, I was, I was lazy, so they would make <laughs> me do my homework. You know what I mean? But they never pushed me towards anything. They never okay. pushed me to go to university. I didn't want to go to university. They never pushed me towards doing anything I didn't want to do. Mm. As long as, as my mom's actually was, as long as you put the work in, I don't care how you do your exams. I've seen you work. I don't care how you do. You do you feel that that benefited you? That that attitude or totally? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah totally. I've probably it gave me very. It gave me a very good attitude later in life where I could be quite lazy and fair about things and say, right, as long as I need to do what I need to do, I know I can make it work. Mm. And if if it, on the day we're filming it's raining or, you know, everything goes wrong, does, does, that's out of my hands. As long as I've done all my prep work and made sure everything's ready to go and my team have done that, because mm. as, now as a director, I've, I'm now responsible for a team of people doing that, then say la vie. There's nothing you can do if, you know, the skies decide to open up and it rains solidly for three days and the script begins with the word with the words it's a glorious gloriously sunny day you know yeah. you just can't you work around these issues yeah, yeah. so i think that's that helped me a lot that, that kind of gave me that attitude to like okay say that be and then my dad was very formative influence as well i mean he would work he was a very interesting guy because he um he went to university and studied quantities of vein so very different to what granda did in fact he's the only one of my of the of the sons my grandfather's sons not going to publishing they all the rest of them went into publishing um, um, and um, he went into quantity surveying and then he went and into what's called loss adjusting which is in, insurance isn't interesting but it's the most interesting part of insurance mm. Mm. and that's basically assessing damage um, and he was 
um, he went was uh, went to work for a company called Thornton and Partners, which was a big loss adjusting firm in Ireland, and he was the youngest partner in Thornton and Partners history. And so he then left there and set up his own company, and he built that into the largest loss adjusting company in Ireland, um, which still exists today although he's long since retired. Mm. And then he went in the UK and built the largest UK specialist loss adjusting firm, which was called Applied Technology Adjusting. And he saw, in the, in the 80, ni- late 80s and early 90s, he saw, well, actually, the late 80s, he saw that technology was going to become much more important and that if you could specialise in technology, um, you would have an edge on your competitors. And he saw that the UK market was so big that you, you could be the specialist firm and do it. So he he hired guys straight out of college, who, university, straight out of university who knew computers. Mm. He said he didn't have a clue what the hell they were talking about most times. <laughs> but as long as they knew the, what the cause of this damage was. Um, and so he, uh, he, so, he, <coughs> so he was very, so he built up a very successful engine. And I remember kind of like, it's funny, I can remember as a kid when he started these businesses, how tight financially everything was. Because he worked like every hour God mm. sent him. And money was tight initially. But I can remember you know, and I like I was lucky. I went, I went, I went to a really good state school in Ireland called St Paul's. Mm. Um, but I remember him working hard to get where he was. And now, like he's he's retired, uh, he retired, and you know he's enjoying the fruits of his labour. But he worked very hard, and I think I got the work ethic. And I've got I work very hard from him. You know, I work really, really hard. And I'm, fr- I'm uh, like I was saying, I'm doing projects as well as doing my day job as a documentary director or a writer. I'm doing projects. That are not making me any money, but I'm doing them because I really want to do them and I believe in them. Mm. And I, that drives me. And a lot, sometimes, like the hunger times, they come off. 90% of the time, they don't. <laughs> 10% of the times, they do come off, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that drives me, I think, a lot. And that's where my dad's influence comes in. Now, my dad, very interestingly, after he retired, and I, I'd gone traveling for quite a bit, and I came back from traveling around um, Australia and, and New Zealand. Um, I sat down, I was like, going back, getting ready to go back into the kind of journalism game because I'd had a couple of years out of it where I basically worked six months, earned as much as I can and went travelling. I'd done that for two years, essentially. I'd worked six months, travel for six months, work for six was months. Was that after months. university then? It was after university. Um, so I came back from Canada in 98, summer 98. I went on, did a master's in international relations. Hmm. Then I worked as a journalist all the way through that and then I also did part-time work in IT <coughs> to earn extra money. What were you doing in IT? Um, so when you rang up to cancel your internet service provider account, my job's to convince you not to leave. Right, yes. <coughs> I was that person. <laughs> yeah. There were a lot of people employed doing that. Yeah. Uh, and Ireland has a huge amount of call centres. Yeah. But it was a good way. You earned well, and it allowed me to um, travel, to earn, save money to go travel. Yeah. And I decided I wanted to travel around Greyhound, around um, the US on Greyhound bus. And I remember walking into my local pub one day and saying, right, I'm going to America. Who wants to come with me? <laughs> And one fellow who I didn't really know <laughs> put his hand on went, I'll go with you. <laughs> and, uh, and, um, and did he? And he did. He did, yeah. He was a Yorkshire man and he worked with a friend of mine uh, called James Duffy who's, who's since passed away. And um, I kind of would be drinking a few times but I didn't know him hugely well. And I was like, okay. And so me and him went and we travelled around Greyhound. I had a great crack, um, brilliant phone with him and we travelled around Greyhound bus. Just out of interest, why did you want do that rather than just going by yourself why did you go in the pub and say who wants to come with me why do you think you did that i think i probably did wasn't brave enough to do it on my own right i don't think i was brave enough <laughs> to do it on my own so i wanted someone to come with me and steve steve said yeah yeah i'll do it did so he prove a good he was a great companion actually yeah. a really really good companion um and we lost touch and then i reconnected with him he ended up leaving ireland moved to china for a while and then 
I moved to Lake District and I reconnected with him. But right. sadly, he passed away two years ago. Heart attack. So um, maybe you shouldn't travel with me. <laughs> Uh, Steve would get that joke. Um, <laughs> he's a Yorkshire man. He's got a great, he had a great sense of humour. He introduced me to rugby league as well. I'll, right. never, I'll never forgive him because it's another sport. Like, you know, another sport to add to my pantheon of having to read through the paper and read everything. You know, <laughs> I didn't know about rugby league, but he was a big Hull fan, and he then introduced me to rugby league. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, so anyway, I went travel, came back, then worked for six months, and then went travel around. Yeah, probably about eight months. Then went travelling for six months around. Um, I did Southeast Asia, Australia, New Zealand. I came home from that. And I was kind of like, oh, I want to do something different. So I got talking to my dad, and dad had retired at this stage, sold the business, retired. And I was saying, like, you know, I was thinking, it'd be really cool to do something about the Irish in Britain. Now, bear in mind, I had no background in documentaries, neither did my dad. I said, why don't we make a documentary? <laughs> uh, so he said, okay, all right, well, let's do that. Let's go. So I went over and did a good few months research, kind of... Um, when uh, dad had a place in London, so I stayed in because because of the business. Dad had a place in London, so I stayed in his place in London, and I basically went to Irish clubs, and, and I realised it was some amazing story there. But I also realised I had no idea how to make a documentary, so I needed mm. to train. Had you had any sort of inkling about making a documentary before that? Or no. This just came to you. This just came to me. Like let's do a documentary about <laughs> the Irish think, Britain. Ba- thinking back, do you, do you know why that just you know why you thought it would be a documentary rather you know because you you said that you love writing and yeah. What, you know, why why a documentary, do you think? Well, I think part of it come out of a conversation with myself and my dad were watching something with the Irish in America and we're like, well, the Irish in America is pretty boring because, you know, they're really successful. And the Irish in Britain hadn't because they've had to, de- they had to deal with the troubles. You know, they come over. My dad remembers, my dad worked in London in the 70s when he was first at Quantity's Vare and he remembers signs that said no Irish, no blacks, no dogs, hmm. you know, on the boarding houses. Like, and he was middle class, so he didn't have that worry, you know, as he said himself, his accent got him true. But if you're from a, you know, work, a rural part of Ireland and you're suddenly plonked in, in in London and a lot of these guys worked on what was called a lump which was basically a cash system they'd be paid in the pub they'd live in the pub they'd come out of the pub they'd never marry mm. they'd end up getting too old to work but because they didn't have any stamps for a pension they couldn't get a pension things like that you know and they were kind of abandoned by the Irish government abandoned by the British government mm. so I think I, I had this idea this is the journalist in me the yeah. crusading kind of story um, and anyway, long story short, I realised I couldn't make this film because I didn't know anything about filmmaking. <laughs> <coughs> um, and I had been when I was over there, I was doing a bit of work for the Irish Post, writing, just writing, you know, you know, covering whatever feshes, covering Irish dancing competitions, just doing little bits and bobs to, to tide myself over. And I was lucky to get work for a uh, sports agency covering football matches. Um, so they'd just send me to whatever game, lower division football matches. It was great. I loved it. I really love football. So covering football, soccer matches was a big thing, was a really cool job. And anyway, after, you know, after however six months working in the UK, researching for this Irish and Britain documentary and realising that I, I needed a lot more skills, I decided, right, I'm going to apply for a course in film and television production. And I applied at Bournemouth University, which is like apparently one of the top ones to apply for. I didn't, I just looked and said, where looks nice, Bournemouth looks nice, I think I'll apply there. <laughs> it's beside the sea, I like the sea, it's got a beach, what more could you want? No yeah. research really done, <laughs> you know? And, and I saw two, Salford and Bournemouth were the two, considered the two best media courses in Britain at the time. I decided to do Bournemouth for obvious reasons. <laughs> um, and lo and behold, got in, you know? Um, uh, kind of, I suppose it was quite almost arrogant on my part, but I didn't think of it like that at the time. Mm. And that was a brilliant course, a really good course. But in in the year doing that Masters in Film and Television Production, someone made a documentary about the Irish and Britain. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of, <laughs> How did you I, find out about that? Uh, my dad rang me and said, you're not going to believe what's on RTE at the moment. 
<laughs> RT is the Irish BBC. So it was your idea, sort of lock, stock and barrel, the whole thing? No, it wasn't. In fairness, it was very, it was actually a lot better than I, I had planned oh. a traditional Talking Heads documentary. Yeah. Say, so this is what the situation is. Here we are. And the director, who's a brilliant director called Maris Sweeney, who I've worked with quite a few times since, um, he did one where he basically went with a camera and just interviewed old guys and talked about their experience and old women and talked about their experience. And he created, and then got beautiful archive to match it. And he created a much more poetic piece than uh, mine was. Mine was very traditional history documentary. Hmm. Uh, the idea I had in my head was very traditional history documentary. Now, looking at it, you know, because I'm probably the same age Maris was when he made that, uh, I wouldn't make that documentary. Hmm. But at the time, that's why I thought documentary should be. Yeah. It had to be. Yeah. Talking heads. And that was it. So... But I came out with this master's in television production, not really sure what I was going to do next. And at the same time, I met my now wife, Elaine, and she was coming over to study at UCLan. So I decided, well, I'll move up north and I'll mm. move in with her. In Preston. In Preston, yeah. So we lived in Bolton, a place called West Houghton, just outside Bolton. And I commuted in. Um, I was very lucky that at that university, I got very good friends with a guy called Mark Beers and his now wife, Caroline. And Caroline had been a presenter on MUTV and she got me a... Uh, work experience, two weeks work experience in MUTV, mm. and I got was there for three months. This is Manchester United TV, Man United Television. Yeah, I was there for three months at Man United Television, and I, I, I knew I didn't want to go into sports television. And um, while I love sports, television sports almost ruins it for you. You know what right. I mean? <laughs> Just because you see the you see the, ba the background of everything. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's a magic to sport when you don't know what's going on. on. So the actual finished product that we yeah. see on screen, yeah, yeah, looks all shiny yeah. and bright, but actually behind the scenes, see, it's, it's not quite the same. No, it's not at all. And I and look to be honest, yeah, I, I know two really good sport directors who direct sport you know and and they're great at what they do but you know they're dealing with 27 cameras and it's like mm, this is not what i want to do no you know i knew i wanted to direct but i knew it wasn't multi-camera directing so yeah i got into man united television um, working for free and i was doing part-time work in a call center no i was doing part of work uh, answering phones for a charity and uh, up in cheatham hill mm. so i did my mornings because man united tv only broadcast from one o'clock onwards i did my mornings working in this um, uh, answering phones for a charity so dealing with crisis cases now I was just the first point of call I then put them in touch with a social worker mm. or, or who, who needed to to, to, be de to deal with the more difficult cases mm. and I would tell my evenings working at MUTV just doing whatever they needed done you know what I mean whether that was making tea doing a lot of sometimes I'd be doing a lot of research and guests that were coming on the shows and stuff like that and um, all unpaid i was doing it in those days you do three month internships and yeah. you know what said anything you know <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and but the great thing about them was many night television was owned by granada television and sky and it was in part of the granada network and so i had access to the granada email servers mm. uh my email address was granada well those at METV was a granada based email and i then i decided that what i was going to do is i was going to go through everyone who was a producer or hire in granada and email them looking for work and i did so i must have said about 50 emails uh, mm. you know and was two. each one tailored to the the person exactly yes yeah. so I, i'd find out because it would tell you who they were in so yeah. like, and i was sending emails to people like in entertainment i had no idea what what to you know you know i love stars in their eyes that was about as all i could say <laughs> you know what i mean you know but uh yeah so i said this to everyone but only two came back to me one of them was a man called bill jones and the other was a man called bill Lyons. um bill jones said i've nothing right now but do keep in touch with me and Bill Lyons said, I may have something for you. Come in for a chat. And I went into Bill Lyons. And, I, and Bill said, right, what are you doing at the moment? I said, well, I'm doing this. He said, well, I need someone to work two weeks full time. Can you give up what you're, the work you're doing? I said, yeah. And I was supposed to be doing something at MUTV that evening. And I was like, 
I rang up the producer and was like, I've got a slight problem. He says, what is it? He says, I've just got a job at Granada, mm. Factuals, the Department of Documentaries. And he was like, okay, we'll go for it, mate. You know, I said, look, am, am I letting you down? And he said, look, don't worry about it. We, we, you know, we've everything in place. You mm. don't need to be here today. What were you Take doing at that point on YouTube? We were doing a show called Countdown to Kickoff. So were you in a sort of production role? Yeah, I was like a runner. Yeah. type role you know yeah. runner yeah. researcher type role yeah. you know so like I said it did whatever needed to be done so then you got this two weeks and right. what was that the, what was the two weeks what were so you doing so two weeks was writing a treatment for a um, docudrama called Titanic Birth of a Legend hmm. and uh, Bill Lyons brought me in introduced me to Bill Jones who I'd already obviously had an email from they were both um, part of uh, they were both execs exec produ executive producers at Granada's uh, Department of Documentary Science and History Hmm. which was part of the factuals department, which made things like World in Action, Tonight with Trevor MacDonald, as well as all these kind of hard-hitting history and science docs. And on the back of those two weeks, they were like, we've got a one-year research trainee contract. Are you interested in going for it? Research trainee contract. And I'm like, yep. And so I, 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 I applied for it like a group of other people, and we, we won that. Hmm. And that was brilliant. And I started working. And the first show I did was a show called home auction which was a broadcast pilot which never got made into series and i was totally unsuited for that because that was very entertainment-y factual mm. entertainment and mm. i'm not factual entertainment at all that was very you know like homes under the hammer type, type thing, thing. Yeah. yeah 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 really not suited to me and with a background in journalism was very unusual to stick me on that yeah very unusual <laughs> to stick me on that um, i do not know what they were thinking and i didn't do very well on that i'll be honest with you but my next job i did was working with a great director called james miller really brilliant producer director still a brilliant producer director mm. and james um we were doing a i was working kind of as a researcher on a show called um plague on the western front which was part of a channel four uh series called hidden histories and uh it was about the spanish flu epidemic and how it began on the western front and I made my acting debut in that as well because mm. during the reenactments they cast me as as one of the victims, early victims of the Spanish flu epidemic. Right. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't act. It was terrible. How was that? How was your performance? I was terrible. It was really, really terrible. It convinced me that I cannot act. <laughs> did uh, you have? Did you have lines, or were you just sort of no? Moaning? no I was just kind of moaning, and I got blown up, but I missed my cue when the explosion went off, and I fell over a bit late, and <laughs> and I got given out to by the director. Bill Lyons was Bill Lyons directed as well as execing. At, at Granada he also directed right. Bill Lyons was directing it I remember there was a scene where we were all lined up to be inspected and one of the other researchers Helen was standing in a in, a, in, in, in one of the um, production trucks and she was sticking her tongue out and making faces and I winked at her and I didn't know the camera was on me and then I all remember Bill Lyons says Farrell stop messing you know and I was like oh sorry <laughs> but apparently that wink that, in fact no not that no, apparently that wink got into the film which Did is great yeah because the camera was on me the, the editor insisted that the wink stayed in it was brilliant fun but I, I enjoyed it and then I did that for a couple of weeks and then I got um, they had a, a new series just commissioned called um, Battlefield Detectives and I worked with James um, J James produced um, Plague in the Western Front he really liked me uh, working with Bill directing and I worked with James. James went on to produce direct Battlefield Detectives and he brought me on board as a, as a researcher. But uh, it went so well, he said, look, you're doing an assistant. We don't. We didn't have an assistant producer on board at the time. And he said, you're doing such a good job. I'm going to promote you to assistant producer. So 
um, that was a really cool job. So me and James went all over the United States touring battlefields. Mm -hmm. It was for the History Channel, and it was all about Civil War battles. And I learned a, re a lot about directing. In fact, I credit James for helping me become the director I became you know without him I definitely wouldn't have been was it always director. in your mind at that point you were just trying to soak up as much about directing specifically I think I was trying to soak up as much about production in mm. history history production uh, specifically so I hadn't really worked out whether I was going to just produce produce direct or just direct mm. uh, I now just direct but at the time I was trying to figure it out and yeah so um, I really enjoyed that and then I went on to a couple of more history series and I came up with an idea eventually becoming a producer at Granada. I produced a crime series, I worked on a crime series called Real Crime and I produced an episode about the um, the bomber, the racist bomber, who, the nail bomber who targeted, um, he, the, he targeted um, um, ethnic minority communities. He planted a bomb in Golders Green, he planted a bomb in um, Brixton and his worst one of course was the bomb in the Admiral Nelson pub in Soho that killed quite a few people. It was a gay pub. And he killed quite a few people, so not a very nice person at all. So there's a documentary, produced documentary about him. And um, I, I, when I finished, I had an idea for a documentary um, call, uh, which was looking at how Ireland had allowed war criminals in after the Second World War. And I went to Bill Jones with it, and Bill was like, to be honest with you, you, know, you really need to be talking to Irish television about this, because this isn't going to work in the UK. It's mm. just too Irish. So... Um, uh, in the in, in the intervening period, my dad had got the bug of working in film, and he'd started working with a company called Tile Films in Ireland. And him and um, the director of Tile Films, Stephen Rook, had, had created uh, two successful series. So in a strange way, I was we were having like these parallel careers. So had he retired by that? Point? He'd retired he, from right. from insurance, and yeah. he'd got after when we talked about doing the doc and nothing came. Yeah. He'd gone off, met this guy Stephen Rook at a um, dinner party. Um, him and my mom were at a dinner party. They got chatting. Colin, they, Dave was saying, well, I'm interested in doing the documentary with the Irish in Britain. I think that's really interesting, you know. And then anyway, they'd, they'd gone together and they'd kind of gone working together on a company called Tile Films. And Tile mm. Films was at that point being basically a vehicle to sell Stevens' services as a director. Mm. And they, so at the time I was working at Granada, they'd created these two television series. Yep. So very interesting, we parallel. So I, so <laughs> I was like, well, Bill said to me, like, do you know anyone you can pitch in Ireland? Well, it just so happens I do. <laughs> so I, I rang... Um, Dave and Dave said look you should really talk to Stephen because I don't think it's appropriate me talking to you and I was like yeah no problem so I chatted yeah. to Stephen Stephen was like this yes we'll make we can make this so we pitched it to RTE myself and Stephen and uh, and they commissioned it naturally enough uh, with mm. the wonderful title Ireland's Nazis <laughs> you put Nazis it's in a title simple, isn't it? put it's Nazis Titanic or put Nazis Titanic or Roman in a title you're guaranteed a commission <laughs> and you can do the Titanic Nazis on the, the, the Nazis the Nazis on the Titanic fighting the Romans you're sorted <laughs> Yeah, got it. Sure thing. So yes. So anyway, yeah. So that. So I decided. Right, I'm going to direct this. Um, even though I'd never directed anything before, and yeah, I went to RT backed it. We made it, and it was really interesting because one of the parallel stories we did at the same time was we told the story of how at the same time as letting in all these um, low level war criminals, the Irish government was also refusing entry to Jewish refugees who'd survived the Holocaust. Mm. So we'd. Uh, twin parallel stories you know, on the one hand they're letting in a guy who's responsible for the Holocaust in Croatia called uh, Andrei Artukovic and on the other hand they are refusing to let in children who survived, survived Auschwitz you know so and it, we had a lot of pushback from the Department of Justice in Ireland who had all the files of these guys they weren't going to leave us access and we put in a freedom of information request and we got access and they wheeled out this tea trolley just stacked with files that were covered in white dust that probably was asbestos but you know we put our gloves on and we mm. put our masks on and we went through everything um, 
and we found what we needed to find. And we, the story, the film, the, the 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 series had a massive impact. It was the highest rating documentary. Two, it was a two part documentary. It was the highest rating. The second episode was the highest rated documentary in Ireland. We had a before the second episode went out, we had an injunction slapped on us. One of the people exposed as being a war criminal went on to become Ireland's leading educational publisher. Uh, mm. Sorry, I'm going to rephrase that. One of the people we exposed as a um, collaborator who we spec who was on a war criminal list um, went on to become Ireland's leading educational publisher um, and had kind of hidden all his past background. And they 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 family slapped an injunction on us, which we, he was dead, so we couldn't liable to dead, so we mm. won the injunction, right. we, but we gave him a right to reply, you know, as you do. Um. Uh, actually, no, we didn't win the injunction. I think we came to an agreement. So let me rephrase that. So mm. he slapped the injunction on us, then we went to the high, four courts, and the judge said, we need to come to an agreement, so we gave him a right of reply. And they said, fine, they got a right of reply. But what they didn't know is that we had a person who came over to Ireland with him uh, who... They denied that he was in the Gestapo, the Sikorainsdienst. They claimed that he was only just um, a translator. Mm. And this guy was able to confirm that he had been in the Sikorainsdienst, that he had been in the Gestapo. Right. And we had him on camera saying that. So we gave him a reply where they said they denied that Albert Fulham was ever in the Gestapo. And then we had a guy straight immediately after going, yes, he was in the Gestapo. Uh, <laughs> it was, it was really I worked with a brilliant journalist uh, called Cahill O'Shannon, who's passed away now. And Cahill was one of Ireland's leading. He used to work for the BBC and he went and joined RT when RT founded. Mm. And he'd been a, a gunner for the RAF during the war. So he had a real, he was a really interesting character and he was very keen to get this film made. And that, that became quite successful. Got me my nomination, got me a nomination for uh, the Irish BAFTAs, the IFTAs, as best documentary. Mm. And it had... Uh, Sold quite well internationally. Um, I think there's been two books that have come out of it, uh, fiction books written by you know authors, uh, that have come out of it as well. And one of those I think has just been optioned for a feature film. So it's kind of spurred, spur, it, it created its own little mini industry. Mm. And then so with that, I, I had a follow up idea. I want after doing the American Civil War thing before. With that, I had a follow up idea about the American Civil War, about the Irish Brigade in the American Civil War, and that got commissioned with for another Irish channel called TG4 and Smithsonian. So I ended up working with Tile Films again on my next project. And that did okay. Uh, that one got made. It w- did all right. Um, it probably um, didn't sell as well as it could have. But it was the Americans were very happy with it, you know. Um, and it gets repeated a lot on Irish television, you know. And it came out just in time for the anniversary of the American Civil War, the 150th anniversary of the American Civil War. So it was good timing. Um, and I came back here to Manchester f- to work for a while. And I worked with Nine Lives Media, which mm. Cat Lewis was really kind. He gave me a chance. Um, to work in development with her, which is basically creating new documentary ideas. Uh, while I try and while I try and you know figure out what I was going to do next, and then just what started happening was I was getting I was either coming up with ideas that were getting doc getting made into docs, or I was getting offered work, and it just that's it spiraled. So I became a history and science documentary director, mm. and I've been doing that now since for ten years. And then a few years ago, I decided I wanted to try my hand at drama. Yeah, that's what I'm doing now. And where I mean. Are you not looking at documentaries at all now? Is it you concentrating on drama? No, no, I'm still looking at documentaries. I just haven't found the right gig. I just won't do anything for the sake of doing it. Right. It has to interest me. I was going to ask you that. Where do you get your ideas from for these documentaries? Where Are you always looking or is it things just sort of pique your interest? I mean, where do they come from? Anywhere and everywhere. Things pique my interest. So, at the moment, um, 
a lot of times it's you read an article in say I don't know the Independent online or the BBC website and you go that's mm. interesting is there something in that then you do a digging and see if there is um, uh, so that's that often is how it comes about so for example I uh, sometimes you get phone calls and they lead the doc so I did a mm. film for Channel 5 a while back called The Lost Ship and what happened was someone I knew in Ireland said there's there's um there's a, a an archaeological team going up to this place called Burtonport on the northwest coast of Ireland, very close to the border with Northern Ireland. And I think they found something interesting. You should give the archaeologist a call. So I was like, okay, I will. So I rang the archaeologist. And she says, yeah, we think we found a Spanish Armada ship. And I said, oh, brilliant. When do you, when you start to dig? And she was like, Friday. And I'm like, that's tomorrow. And she says, yeah. <laughs> so I'm right, well, I need to get up there, don't I? So I went up. I borrowed a camera from a camera, cameraman I know and went up there. Managed to get a sound man at short notice come up with me. And then the problem is it's an archaeological dig underwater and I, I don't die. I, at the time, I couldn't dive, so mm. I couldn't shoot underwater. I, I can dive now, but at the time, I couldn't dive. So I needed to find a, 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 a someone who could go underwater and film what was happening underwater. And mm. very lucky, there was a stills photographer who had a camera that could had a rolling shutter that could make, shoot film. And he said, oh, well, I can come up. You know, I, need, I, want to, I, want, you know, I want actually a bit more experience in film. I'll come up and, and I'll, do, I'll dive. So you shoot above ground on the boat you should it on the boat when we're above water mm. and I'll do the underwater filming so we did that and we cut a teaser together which is a small trailer it's about three minutes long and on the back of that Channel 5 came on board and we made a film for Channel 5 turned out in the end that it wasn't the Spanish Armada ship that the <laughs> ship was actually from slightly later right yeah so that was a slight problem so we'd been following the dig three years we'd been following the dig right and on the third year we discovered it wasn't the Spanish Armada ship <laughs> so, I so the, the title had to be reworked yes, as this yeah, documentary yeah so it became the lost ship so I remember right. ringing the exec from, from Channel 5 saying look we've got great footage but <laughs> <laughs> well how did they react they were like okay well how, what is it and I said it's a pirate ship they were like, well, that's fine. That's yeah, good. That's good. That's good. Yeah. I like that. We so, can sell pirates. Yeah, yeah. So we, so, so we did. So we created this brilliant um, little documentary that Channel Five screened and went did well for Channel Five. And so that's that 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 can happen like that where you get a phone call. But most was there any time, treasure, by the way? No, there was no treasure. In fact, the ship had sunk in about ten feet of water, and the good people of Donegal had basically cleaned it out. <laughs> <laughs> so there was no cannon. We found a lot of military material, and we found. What what pointed to being a pirate ship was there was a lot of stuff that had clearly come from Spanish ships, mm. um, and we realised they it was a raiding ship. It was too heavily armed to be a trader, because it was basically armed. There was one, what wasn't stole. See what wasn't basically booty from Spain mm. was weaponry. Right. So we realised you know like even the even like the crew we found leather accoutrements and they were all military grade accoutrements, but it wasn't a military ship because mm. there was no record of a military ship going down. Right. In that area, and the great thing, you know, you, you, when a military ship is lost, there's a record of it. it, it this was a raider of some sort, mm, an mm. illegal raider, essentially a pirate, privateer. Actually, was the correct term. Um, so yeah, so we were able to twist the story. So we, the first half of the film was about the Armada. The second half of it was about the after the Armada. Because what happened after the Armada was basically James the First gave free reign to privateers to attack Spanish and Dutch shipping, who were the two big rivals to Britain at that time. Mm. But he couldn't be seen to let him sail off the coast of England. So basically these privateers who moved to Ireland and sailed off the coast of Ireland as a kind of semi, what would you call them? Like almost like, uh, on, on uh, oh, I'm trying to think of special forces pirates is the best way to describe it. <laughs> they weren't, they're semi-legitimate. You know, James I could deny any knowledge of them right. if they, when they did stuff, but he was yeah. they were fully aware of what they were go- doing. And br- what we know from the history records is that his 
agents in Ireland, so you know his, his whoever was his lord lieutenant for such and such an area, was getting were getting payoffs mm. from the privateers for operating, and then that money was being sent back to the coffers right. in London. You know, <laughs> so it was a really interesting story. So that's an example of how that came. That was a phone call yeah. on a Thursday and on Friday. I think actually on Saturday we were up in Donegal filming. <laughs> you know? Are there other examples like that where that was from a phone call? Are there ones, yeah, similarly sort of unexpected, I guess? Yeah. Um, so, and I did another film called Debt on the Railroad for PBS in the United States. Hmm. That Here's another example. That came about because of a tiny article in the, on the, you know, the in news and brief section in the paper hmm. about two brothers from Pennsylvania who were looking for a mass grave of 57 Irish railroad workers who died of cholera. That's what that's all it was. And the producer saw this and said, this is a really good story. And they filmed, they went out and they filmed the excavation and not, these guys had no background in archaeology and they found nothing and they made a documentary about the 57 missing guys and it kind of was forgotten about. And then um, a few months later, that producer gets a phone call, and he's like, well, "They were like, guess what? We think we found a body." And they're like, "Oh wow!" And I happened to be over in the states at the time filming on another thing. And I got a phone mm. call going, "Can you get to Pennsylvania? Right. Can you and, and Colin Whelan, which is the cameraman I was working with, did this. Sorry, can you and Colin Whelan, which was the cinematographer I was working with at the time, go over to Pennsylvania?" So we were like, "Yeah, okay," and we did. And we we um we realized, unlike the first documentary. That this time around they were much bit more organised. They learned, they knew what they were doing. They brought on board teams from the University of Pennsylvania, a school of anthropology and archaeology, and uh, was proper laid out dig. Uh, they brought, they got this really good ground penetrating radar guy involved, and he found basically these air pockets where which which looked like they were graves that had collapsed in. Mm. Um, and the story had been basically that these fifty seven railroad workers had come along to build mile fifty nine of the Pennsylvania railroad. And uh, they'd all died of cholera, which was very unusual because cholera only has a 60 to 70% death rate. And as the bodies started coming out of the ground, so our story was that this is a cholera, this is a cholera mass grave, and it'll tell us a bit about cholera. But as the bodies started coming out, we realized they'd all suffered perimortem trauma, which is basically trauma occurring in or around the time of death. And it looks like they'd been murdered. So our, suddenly our story, which was a kind of straight cholera story, became a murder mystery. Mm. Um, and we changed it completely. And again, I followed that dig for three years. Because they, they would, a bit like the, the dig on, uh, for the Armada ship, they were only limited times they were allowed to dig because it was on private property. So they were only given windows to dig. And anyway, well, long story short, you know, it turned out that at least we didn't find all 57 bodies, but all the bodies we found had perimortem trauma. Uh, we also discovered that one of them was a woman, which we weren't expecting. And that story went in a totally different direction. Mm. You know, it started with this kind of very cholera. This was going to be about the early days of railroad, and it became about a murder mystery story instead. Um, and PBS have a strand called Secrets of the Dead, um, and they loved it. You know, they, they they still, in fact, you can see it on YouTube. It's on their PBS channel on YouTube today, okay. and they loved it. And they still, I think, they repeat they repeat it a couple of times. That's that's an example where a story came about mm. by a phone call that I wasn't expecting when I was doing something completely different. Yeah, and it just so happened I was at the end of one shoot, and they were like, "Can you go over to this other shoot?" You know what I mean? Amazing how these things uh, just materialize, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, just thinking back as well now in terms of. You mentioned when you you were looking at the very first potential documentary with your dad, yeah, and you were thinking of making it one way, and you think you would make it very differently now. What do you think if you were making it now? What do you think are the big things 
as a director or as a filmmaker, however you want to think of it, the things that you've learned, the big things that you've learned about how that you make films now in a way that you would never have known back then when you started? Yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, I've learned so much. Um, I think the, the key things I've learned is that don't try and force a story because stories have a way of kind of finding their own way out. And I suppose I would have, in early days, tried to really oh, put my hands on top of the story completely. And the other thing I learned is don't, don't be afraid of criticism and don't be afraid of um, reviews because like when you're going in, like I remember in my very first viewing with Ireland's Nazis with the commissioning editor from, from RTE and it didn't go well. You know, he, you know, the story was too soft, you know, essentially. And I know now I realise, but I got really upset by it. And I remember like getting really annoyed, but going, how dare he suggest these changes? Doesn't mm. he know, you know, I've directed this, I spent, you know, like six months of my life into this, blah, blah, blah. But actually, what it, all the suggestions made this film stronger. Mm. And by cha changing it the way he wanted, it made it much stronger. You know what I mean? Um, and I think that, 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 was one, that was one of the key things, was learning, like, learn to take criticism. Mm. Because, you know, generally it's, it's constructive. You know what I mean? You'll always get people who are just doing it because they don't like you, but hmm. most criticism is constructive, you know what I mean? But if it's from someone like that, I guess, who has all that experience, yeah. they know what's exactly, best yeah. for the they film. Know. And, what's and he'd, he'd come from a journalism background. And he'd yeah. seen this. He, I was naive. He was clearly aware this is going to be a news story. As well as being a documentary, this will be a news story because you're basically saying Ireland was a haven, just hmm. like Argentina, for war criminals. But we've denied it and we've hidden it and now we're exposing it. I was totally naive to the news story that was going to come out of that. Um. Uh, and that that and so I was more prepared so you know funny enough like the two digs they were news stories but I was much more prepared for them. they were probably better news stories because it wasn't the same amount of issues but mm. I was much more prepared for the news story that was going to come out mm. of those dig and, I, and, and, and more able to you know talk on radio shows talk to the media know how to get the point about the story across so that it wasn't lost mm. yeah yeah one it follows on slightly then what you're saying to something that you mentioned before about getting a lot of rejection in the industry that yeah. you're in yeah so how do you deal with that rejection i guess is a question and and what what makes you sort of drive through to forget all the rejection and to keep going i just ignore it i just say right that's okay that's dead or come back to that in a couple of years when someone else maybe in the position of power and they might actually like the story like there has been projects that have been rejected that have come back and happened later mm. you know what I mean yeah I mean there was one film I did where as a producer called Saving the Titanic which was about the engineers in the ship when it was going down and how to try to keep the ship afloat as long as possible to get as many people off the ship as possible I mean the ship had been designed as its own lifeboat and when they discovered that the ship wasn't going to stay afloat they tr they basically decided they'd sacrifice these 33 engineers decided to sacrifice their own lives to keep the pumps going as long as possible so hopefully a rescue ship would arrive mm. um, but that was really interesting because that, that, that got made but we had a Canadian um, broadcaster on board and then the, commi the commission editor left and the new commission editor came in and they axed it and we were like oh my god where are we going to find this missing money from we mm. built this package around uh, German we had German money on board we had UK money on board so we um, Irish money on board and with Canadian money board, suddenly the Canadian money disappeared. What the hell are we going to do? And we were very lucky that PBS in the US stepped in and took on took on the project. So you kind of think, right, if you if if you really believe the story, it'll happen, and don't worry about the rejection. Just move, keep pushing on. And if you are rejected, everybody rejects it. And I had this idea called about Scuttlers, which were the Irish, which were the Manchester Peaky Blinders. Mm. Okay, and I'd pitched it everywhere, and it was rejected by everywhere. And I'm like, oh well, 
it's not going to happen. And then they make a dra- it was a documentary. And they make a drama called Peaky Blinders, who were basically the Birmingham scuttlers. Mm. I thought I, I, what I learned from that was like, I actually don't always think it can be a documentary. Think of other ways. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You no. Know, repackage uh, it. Repackage it in a different way. You know. Now, to be honest with you, like I don't think I could ever have created anything like Peaky Blinders, mm. but it did show me that there was, there is always other ways. You know, just because the Scuttlers, the Scuttlers story, Scuttlers were, the pitch was, I think, Scuttlers, the first hooligans. And they were just like the Peaky Bandits. They're basically young, gangs of young men in Manchester who fought for territory mm. so they could control, I think they wanted to control the dance halls or something, you know what I mean? Mm. You know, whatever the big kind of underground industry was. Yeah. Um, and that taught me a big lesson because we pitched that to pretty much everyone from BBC, Channel 4, Channel 5, and just couldn't get off the ground. And they were struggling going like, you know, where's our central core story? Who's our central core story? And there wasn't mm. a there wasn't a central scuttler you could point out and say he's like the ultimate scuttler. There just wasn't. Mm. Um and there wasn't you need a Tommy that. Shelby. There wasn't a Tommy Shelby, exactly. And you need kind of need that in any documentary. You need your central character. Like mm. in the lost ship, our central character was the ship. Yeah. You know what I mean? And what how how the ship was changing, or the, what we were learning about the ship was changing. You know, in our Death in the Railroad. Our central character was the two brothers carrying the archaeological dig. They were real. They were live. They were the two fellas driven to find the story about these fifty-seven Irish railroad workers. Mm. But there was no central character, and you do kind of need a central story, or you know, a couple of people. You know, if you're doing a film about the Battle of Britain, you'll focus on one squadron, and you'll probably focus on two people in that squadron. Yeah, do you know what yeah. I mean? Even yeah. though you're telling the broader story, because people need it to be focused on one. They need to anchor it on one or two people. Exactly. Mm. And drama is brilliant, perfect for that, you know. So obviously, you know, that's that's one thing I learned. And so I, I've often gone back and looked at some doc proposal that never happened, where I really believed in it, but I re- now realise that they weren't right for documentary and thought, could this work as a drama? And an example, one of them is I did a short film called Jubilee Nurse. Now, my great aunt was a Jubilee Nurse. The Jubilee Nurses were, <coughs> they were basically the a charity, uh, Queen's Nursing Institute, which was founded, um, Queen Victoria's, Golden Jubilee, and they were a charity for nurses who of nurses who basically worked in remote, rural and remote areas who cared for the very poorest in that area, uh, and they were funded by donations from within their local area, and they were run by the Queen's Nursing Institute, and there was a Queen's Nursing Institute still exists today in the UK, but today they specialise in research, and there was a Queen's Nursing Institute in in Ireland, and they were known in Ireland as the Jubilee Nurses. My aunt was a great aunt was a Jubilee nurse. And my gran was a community nurse, so a version of the Jubilee nurses, but working in 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 Dublin City. Mm. So I was really interested in them, but there was no good central character for documentary. So I thought to myself, well, there's a drama here. So I wrote a Jubilee nurse with my central character being based on essentially my gran and my aunt. You know, they were five, five and it was a really strong female-led story. Mm. And I set the story uh, much earlier than my gran was working. I set the story in 1918, and I went back to what I knew about the Spanish flu epidemic, and I said. What if I got a, we get a British soldier coming home to the front from the front, lands up in a rural Ireland, and he comes out with this mysterious illness that no one knows anything about it. And at the time, in 1918, the British thar- military authorities were desperate to make sure that no news came out of the front that these soldiers were dying from this mysterious flu. Mm. We didn't even know it was flu, this mysterious illness. So I said, what if there's a cover-up? So our nurse has a, pay, has a, has a soldier come home, he gets ill, and he's, there's a cover up. So that was my, that, that, that would actually didn't happen. But 
dramatically it can happen because you're yeah. doing a drama it's not it's not it's pure fiction you know what i mean yeah. so i did that and that was my first drama short film i'd made i'd done docudramas i understood drama i'd work with actors um, i did a film called a terrible beauty which looked at the 1916 rising which ended mm. up getting in cinema shown in cinemas in the united states and over here in the uk screened in manchester screened in liverpool screened in nottingham and that looked at the um, that was i'd fixed i'd created scenes with real people where I'd written their dialogue, so it was fictional dialogue. You know what I mean? But I knew that these two fellas were in this room, and I thought mm. to myself, what would they talk about if they were in their room? They talk about family. Soldiers always talk about family, so I did scene mm. to humanise them. So that was kind of a... Jubilee Nurse was a step on for Terrible Beauty, where I created... I had a historical event, the Spanish flu epidemic. I had historical figures, the Jubilee Nurses, and I created a completely fictional yeah. world. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know. Um, in a, so in a way, you can't do that with documentaries. No, no. So you've a lot more freedom in, in, in drama to, mm. to, to do that. And so that's where that came about. And that's how I kind of thought, oh, I'd like to do more drama, you know. Um, so, uh, you know, that the you know the, from there, then I, after Jubilee Nurse, I went to work for the BBC and I met Hannah and then we, I did a f- pure, again, it was kind of based on this true story, but it was pure fiction and it was set in the present day. And after that, then I did The Hunger Times, which is, of course, set in the family, but pure fiction and, and so on and so forth. And that's where it's kind of been going. And I'm now about to do another short film, which is set, which is pure pure fiction, no historical background at all, set in present-day Manchester. And I've, myself and a Canadian um, writer, have just won funding for a pilot for a, um, uh, a to, sorry, myself and a Canadian writer have just won funding to write a pilot hmm. for a television series but essentially about a Canadian woman who um, goes returns to Ireland to spread her, her her grandmother's ashes and then kind of reconnects with her her past her grandmother's past um, uh, in a way she doesn't expect I can't say too much because it hasn't been written yet no. but you know what I mean <laughs> yeah. um, and that so that, so it's kind of funny how that's kind of gone mm. the documentary I still do documentary but it's kind of gone and I've gone from doing the kind of historical fiction to now I'm doing pure fiction mm. You know what I mean? And is that what you'd like to do, you know, looking ahead in an ideal world? Is that where the direction you want to go? Or are you happy to keep a foot in both camps? I'd like to keep a foot in both camps. I, I really, I'd like to keep a foot in both camps because I really enjoy documentary making. But at the moment, I'm really enjoying drama and fiction. Mm. And I, that's where I can see myself going for the foreseeable future. But I think I will always make docs. If I, there's some stories I could only be told. The, the, the ju- there's some stories that you could only do justice to it by telling it as a documentary. You know, if you think about something like um, Man on Wire, on Wire mm. okay, that could only really be told as a documentary. Amazing film. Yeah, exactly. It? An incredible yeah. film. Um, so for me, I won't ever give up making docs. And I think there'll be some history stories that could only be told through documentary. You know what I mean? Mm. I mean, I, you know, take for example, the film The Battle of Britain. It's you know, classic old film. It's a great film. But I think documentaries have told the story of The Battle of Britain far better than the feature mm. film has. Because mm. it's, you know, it's such a big event that you can tell it in so many different ways and I think documentary lends itself I mean even you know say something like Dunkirk you know that that was a that was a really nice well made film but the best thing I've ever seen about Dunkirk is a documentary about Dunkirk where they survivors talking about the experience of getting off the beach mm. you know yeah it feels to me actually there's a bit of a just as as a watcher of Netflix and whatever else, it's a bit of a golden age for documentaries because there's so many you can watch now and just tap yeah. into. I mean, obviously some with more, you know, uh, truth than others, I think, because there's a lot of conspiracy theory sort of documentaries. But there's, there's so much stuff out there. And, you know, with, with the whole Icarus phenomenon last yeah. this year and last year as well, you know, there's a real appetite for these documentaries. There is. There? I think there's, for the last 10 years, there's been a golden age of documentary, to be honest mm. with you. I think um, what's happened is Michael Moore probably began it 
but the academy people are much more aware of docs that get nominated for academies you know academy awards hoop dreams was probably the first breakthrough documentary mm. which was an oscar nominee should film about two young guys going yep. through the basketball and i remember it's a fantastic film um, and so i think that michael morden took it to another level and i think that that has helped and i think because suddenly a lot more attention is given to academy awards documentaries it's helped spread trickle uh, create a trickle down effect i think the british public have always been really avid documentary maker viewers mm. uh, british public have always been avid documentary viewers britain has always had a very been on the cutting edge of making documentaries you know pe- the part like the department i worked in, in granada granada factuals made some of the most iconic and significant British documentaries. They made the Up series, 7-Up, 14-Up, yeah. 21-Up, um, Michael Apted, who also directs drama. Then, um, then you've World in Action, where Paul Greengrass, who, you know, feature film director, came out of. You have... Born, born Identity. Is the born Identity. Yeah. You, you've done you've the famous... I mean, well, uh, you know, think about Hillsborough, the doc, docudrama Hillsborough, mm. which was made by that department, which was a total precursor to everything that came later. Mm. You know, they made Hillsborough within less than maybe three years, I think, after the disaster. And, you know, it was basically said everything that, everything that they said and they got accused of lying on turned out to be true. Mm. But they did it as a docudrama. You know what I mean? So I think, you know, Britain has always been on, and, you know, on the BBC side, I think you've got Panorama, which helped get the Birmingham Six off, who, you know, proved that the Birmingham Six had been... Um, Framed for 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 those for those for the bombs in Birmingham, our um, Thames Television's Death on the Rock. You know, they, Britain has had a very good track record of making documentaries mm. that have been hard hitting and ex- exposing wrong, r- writing wrongs, um, and it's always they've always done well in Britain. Um, I think what you're seeing now is that you're now seeing an international explosion of documentaries in a way that probably hasn't happened before. You know. Are you ever tempted to uh, adopt the sort of Michael Moore approach and no. go the other side of the camera? Not a chance. Not <laughs> with not? this voice. Not with this face. <laughs> a great face. Just like you have a great face for radio. <laughs> it's not something you consider. No, not at all. Why is that though? Um, just, just not for me. I don't want to no. be in front of a camera. No interest. <laughs> Although for someone who's actually put himself in front of a camera a couple of times, <laughs> I have no interest in, in presenting anything. I hate my voice, you know. <laughs> Um, you know, no, not at all. No, I'd rather not. I've, I, 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 yeah, I know, I know, I'm not. I did a film called Debt or Liberty, a docudrama mm. with um, Billy Bragg. Oh yeah, and it was all built around the concert Billy did in Australia, and it was about the uh, impact of Australian, uh, of impact of um, British and Irish um, political prisoners on Australian democracy. And um, there was a scene. We there was a scene where one of our uh, central character is a man called William Cuffey, who was the son of a freed slave who was um, uh, framed for... He was basically an, a proto-unionist, early pre-trade union days. He was an early trade unionist, essentially. And they basically stitched him up and sent him to, uh, uh, claimed he was making war against the Crown. He was guilty of treason and sent him to Australia. And he then became heavily influential in the early trade union movement in the um, in Australia. And uh, Cuffey's a really interesting man. And we, we had a scene where he was being arrested. And the, on the day, the person who was supposed to play the piece after never turned up. So I said, I'll do it. I'll direct it. <laughs> I said to my assistant director, you can direct this scene and I'll, I'll do it. And uh, so I arrested him, you know, and I put on this, what I thought was a Cockney accent. And later on, we're in uh, post-production, we're doing a sound post. And I noticed that my voice is no longer on the voice, the voice the cockney voice of the police officer and yeah. what had happened was the post-production sound guy who'd worked for years in london had 
put his voice doing a Cockney accent over my voice because my voice was so bad. <laughs> so, so, so that was an early indication. That was a definite indication of maybe I'm not cut out for yeah. the acting world. <laughs> or maybe I can act but not speak. No. Just back to the idea of uh, rejection again just for a minute because I think it is a. it seems to be being able to take rejection is a massive part of being a filmmaker. Is Is that, you know, is... Is that an important skill to be able to take rejection or to ignore rejection? And also, what are the other sort of key things you think that are the main things that you have to have to be to be a filmmaker? What do you need to yeah. to think about to succeed? Well, there, being able to accept rejection and also sometimes being able to learn take that rejection and spin it in such a way that you can you can make the story work in a different way. You know, because if you get rejected by a commissioning editor at a major channel, it's because your film doesn't work for their, that channel. But that doesn't mean it's not going to work for a different channel. Mm. I, I particularly like working with someone like Ben Frow at Channel 5 because he's just straight into the point. He says, no, this isn't for my audience. You know, exactly. There's, there's no messing around. Mm. And that's what you want. Um, you just, you know, I, I, you, you, it's not that you develop a hard skin. You can't be precious. You know, the simple fact of the matter is what you think is a great idea may not be a great idea. What you think is a great film may not be a great film. You just move on. Store it away because you never know. It may come back mm. do you know what i mean um and a good example of that was the ireland's nazi story because i remember talking to my dad when i was studying history at university and he was telling me we were talking about the the campaign in, in the netherlands mm. you know the bridge too far mm. and uh he got talking about and this is when he, he hadn't retired at the stage he was still working as quantities of air but he said oh when i was sorry he hadn't retired at the stage he was still working as a loss juster but he mm. said when i went to university there was a guy called staff van veldhoven he was Dutch, and we knew he'd fought for the resistance during the war. And I was like, "All oh, right, okay." And they, he, they were, he, he was like, um, "But uh, we, you know, he'd sit in his own, and we'd leave him to it." And then one day we got up the courage to go and ask him what it was like, you know, to fight the resistance. And we sat down and said, "Did you fight the resistance in the war?" And he went, "Yeah, yeah." And he <laughs> said, "Like, you know," uh, and, and um, uh, what, you know, we asked him what was it like to fight the Germans, and he said, um, "I didn't fight the Germans; I fought with the Germans." <laughs> And it turned out that he had been involved, he had been a collaborator who joined the SS, who had been part of these units left behind to blow up bridges as the British advanced, as kind of underground rebels. And presumably he hadn't talked about this very much since. No, he hadn't, but he'd been one of these collaborators who'd been brought into Ireland as, you know, he, he was Catholic, so he was smuggled into Ireland, because right. as long as you were Catholic and a war criminal, you were fine. If you're Jewish, God help you, you weren't getting in. He'd be one of these Catholics who'd been, who'd been brought into Ireland, who'd been able to get into Ireland, and had settled and lived, and basically been allowed to live. He was wanted by the Dutch authorities, but, you know, he'd, he'd, he'd survived, and he'd become a lecturer in university mm. in Ireland. And I started away, I thought, that's a feckin' great, there's a great news story there. But the problem was... What I discovered was, when I spoke to my editor about it, was firstly, you know, I'm a sports journalist. What the hell am I doing writing Nazi stories about Nazis? <laughs> number one. Number two, uh, legally, it was going to be a minefield. Because this was the early 90s. And a lot of these guys were alive. And they were like, mm. we, and our, the Irish libel laws are incredibly, they're ridiculously tight. So you practically had to have someone. So if you were exposing someone as being a Nazi, you practically had to have, you know, I don't know. Gorbals raised from the dead to say, mm. yes, he was a Nazi, that yeah. kind of thing. You know, literally was. The, the, and he was just like, we can't take this risk on the story. So the story, it was a rejection, but a different form of rejection. The story just couldn't happen. Yeah. But funny enough, later on, whatever, 10 years later, when I'm working in documentaries and I'm looking and I'm thinking about ideas, I remember this story from my dad. And I'm like, I wonder what, what, 
could could we revisit that story now? Because a lot of these guys were dead, so mm. we didn't have the same issues with libel. Um, and also, the other thing that was happening was he still alive? The he was actually. We actually interviewed him. He right. was the man who connected us to right. To, he was to, the guy. To the other guys, okay. yeah. And what was really interesting was that other thing that happened, of course, was the internet expanded. Expanded. Mm. So suddenly, we I was able to get. I didn't have to physically fly to the United States. I could find a guy who was a researcher in the United States who would go into the. Um, museum into the archives in Washington and was able to go through the US war criminals list and pull out details on the people we were searching. So we got the files of our new, our new, our Artukovich. We got the files on, um, that's how we found Albert Follin's name. We got him, he was on a US file, you know. We were able to get someone to do the same in Belgium. Mm. So the story I couldn't make in 95, 94, which was rejected, because it would just would have, they couldn't afford to send me to all these places to dig in the files to find yeah. the evidence, could now be made because I could email a researcher. Yeah. Yeah. Find, he could go in, pay him to do the work for me, come out and do that. So it's interesting. See, you know, even if you're rejected, it, it doesn't necessarily mean it won't happen. You know, mm. I made Ireland's Nest in 2006. So 11 years later, the story. I, I remembered it and I went, oh, this would be a great story. This would be a great doc. So if it's a good idea, hang on to it and, and yeah. sort of play the long game because you exactly. never know. Never know when it will come back, mm. you know? So I think that's the key thing to take is that rejection isn't mean the thing is dead. There's always a chance it will come back, you know? Mm. Final question for you then about sort of the filmmaking side of things. Um, what about feature films? Is that an ambition? That's my next step is feature films. I'm working on two feature film ideas at the moment. Um. Uh, one one's a really interesting you know you talk about how you find your stories mm. this is a really interesting way so <laughs> when I was making Saving the, Titan Saving the Titanic I was filming in that, we were filming in Ardmore Studios and I was sitting down one day like I was talking to an actor called Stephen Hogan <clears throat> he's one of these brilliant Irish character actors you'd know his face but you wouldn't know the name incredible actor and uh, Stephen was like um, we got talking about making documentaries and Stephen says I think I might have a good documentary and I'm like oh what is it and he said well my uncle robbed the Tate Gallery and I went, what? He's my uncle robbed the Tate Gallery. <laughs> and he says, do you think that would make a good doc? And I went, that will make a great doc, but, you know, might make a better feature film. So me and Stephen got talking, and this was like 2011, mm. and where we were 2018 now. Me and Stephen got talking, and we started researching the story. And basically what happened was, in 1956, there was, let me start again. Basically what happened was, there was a series of 32 paintings, which had been collected by an Irish collector called Hugh Lane. And he had left the paintings to Dublin in his will. Mm. But he hadn't got the will witnessed. And he'd climbed aboard the Lusitania in 1915 and it had sunk. And the will had never been witnessed, so it wasn't legally binding. Mm. Okay, His paintings were sitting in the National Gallery of London where he put them at the start of the war to protect them. And the National Gallery claimed the paintings as belonging to them. He, um, and this had caused uproar. And after the Irish War of Independence... Um, Ireland demanded the paintings the city of Dublin had demanded the paintings back and they'd been refused to be returned and it was a kind of ongoing sore and it kind of by 1950 1950s had been forgotten about by the general public and Paul Hogan Stephen's uncle uh, not that Paul Hogan <laughs> <laughs> was a young art student in yeah. Dublin and he discovered about these paintings. His mum told him about the paintings. And he thought this was a disgrace. And as an artist, there was some incredible... They were, uh, Hugh Lane had been one of the early collectors of Impressionist masterpieces. So he had this amazing collection of Impressionist masterpieces. Um, uh, and uh, the collection is separated. Part of the collection he'd kept in Ireland and it was still, uh, still in Ireland. The other part was in London and it hadn't been reunited with its... Mm. With its terrorist collection. So Paul said he needed something. So he'd, his best friend, Billy Fogarty, was a veterinary student. 
And they came up with this hatchet plan to go to the Tate Gallery in London, take a painting off the wall and get arrested. And the publicity would raise an awareness about these 32 paintings and hopefully they'd be returned to the city of Dublin. Hmm. So, they, you know, it was a drunken plan. It's the best description of it, you know. So they went on the boat to London. They went direct. They, they wrecked the um, Tate Gallery. Paul had managed to get a letter, forged letter, from his university, cl- getting him permission to go in and, and, and paint the Hugh Lane paintings. Mm. A sketch the Hugh Lane painting, so they, he had an excuse to be there every day. Mm. So they kind of figured out how they, what painting they were going to. They decided on the Jour d'Orette by Marisette, which is a be- one of the few female impressionists. It's a beautiful painting. Probably worth about the 10 million in today's money. I don't know what it was worth in 1956, but it was, you know, not a, an expensive piece of work. Mm. And they decided this was the one they were going to get. They were going to steal. So on the day, Paul lifts the painting off the wall, puts it in his folio, walks out the door to Tate. On the way, a security guard stops him and he goes, it's okay, it's all under control and walks out. Billy then follows him out and they'd been smart enough. They knew they, knew they needed publicity, they needed to get a photographer. So they organised with a press photographer from the Irish press agency they said there's going to be a demonstration outside the door, the wall, outside the uh, Tate Gallery mm. about these paintings. Can you get a photographer down? They'd send a photographer down. He'd arrived, there's no demonstration. <coughs> they, they had... He'd been expecting to see something, you know, police or something. Nothing happens. They get mm. out the door. They've actually got away with seeing the painting. They're, they're, they want to be arrested, right? So <laughs> they want to be arrested. So they do not. Now the plan has gone wrong because it's gone too well. Yeah, they've got it, and no they've one's got the stopping them. They've yeah. got it. So the photographer, according to his police statement, because we've got the police statements, said this mysterious guy who came up behind him and said, "Take the photo." And he clicks off a photo, and it's Paul Hogan walking down the steps of Tate with the Jordette under his arm. They come down the steps of Tate, Paul gets in the cab, and there's a black cab rank right in front of the Tate. If you don't know, if you know the Tate Gallery, there's a black cab rank right mm. in front of the Tate Gallery. They get in front of the, in the cab, Billy follows him in, and they're like, what do we do now? And the cab is like, <laughs> where to, Gov? And they're like, they don't know where. They don't know anywhere in, in London. So they go Piccadilly Circus. And they drive to Piccadilly Circus. And they're like, what are we going to do now? You know, we were supposed to be arrested. We're, the plan was to be in a police cell by now. You know, we're raised, you know, raised. So Paul had met at the colony rooms the night before they'd gone uh, they'd met the famous colony rooms mm. Paul had met an Irish artist called Mary and they decided they, Paul had, she'd written down her address to Paul you know that obviously been a little bit of a spark time so Paul decides they're going to go to her address and uh, when they went to her address she didn't hand them in she thought this was the coolest thing ever and the three <laughs> of them the two they went on the run with the two, the, the two lads went on the run <laughs> and really interestingly the, the policeman who found a stone of Schoon was the same policeman who was hunting them. His right. name was Detective McGrath and he was from Ireland. Right. So you've got two Irish lads on the road from an Irish police officer in, in the England. And they went on the road for four or five days. Um, so was it discovered immediately that they'd... No, it, it actually wasn't discovered until a little bit later on when someone was do, when one of the guys was doing the rounds went, in fact, the painting's missing. <laughs> you know? And that paint, that photograph is kind of iconic because that photograph ended up... Uh, it, it, Princess Grace of Monaco was due to get married. Right. Um, and that photo pushed her off the front pages of the press. And if you Google Tate Robbery Paul Hogan, you will see that photo. It, I it will. Comes up with I her. will do. But what's really interesting about that as well was the. Um, I love the story. So Stephen Hogan's brother, uh, Stephen Hogan's um, uncle Paul, his brother Stephen's father, was working in Oman at the time. And on the local Omani paper, 
he sees a picture of his brother <laughs> walking to the art gallery with a paint on her arm. And I kid you not, Stephen told me this. He said his dad's reaction was, that's my jacket he's wearing. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they went around for five days. There was a slight twist to the story in that um, uh, Paul's uh, Paul Hogan's father was the most senior civil servant in Ireland at the time. Right. So the son of the most senior civil servant has robbed a priceless work of art from the Tate Gallery. There was a slight diplomatic crisis, as you can imagine. Uh, long story short, the police never catch them. They, I mean, they, they have some adventures. They dress up as priests at one stage and go on the road dressed as priests. And, you know, in Ireland you can disguise as a priest, but in England you can't. Um, they uh, they spent five days in the run, and, it's, and then they agree that they're not going to get the paint. They, their aim, once they sold the paint, was to try and get it to Dublin. So that at least, you know, it landed on the soil it's supposed to be on. Mm. They realised that wasn't going to happen. So Mary, who had joined them on their kind of quest, said, right, we, she will take the painting and it will hand it into the Irish embassy. So mm. symbolically, it ended up on Irish soil. Yes. And then what we've learned from the police files, it was so embarrassing that two students were able to walk into the Tate Gallery and walk <laughs> out with a piece of work on the work that they decided they just quietly let them slip back to Ireland without arresting them. That was actually going to be... The publicity would be worse. Mm. I mean, long story short, the two lads actually did raise awareness for the painting, actually, because the painting ended up everywhere. That photo mm. of the two... Sorry, the photo of... Paul walking in the steps with the painting went everywhere. The photographer who took it won press photograph of the year right. for his for his photograph. Um, and uh, and, the, and three years later, the paintings were loaned back to Dublin by the National Gallery. Now, they're still not owned by the Irish state. They should be, but they're still not owned. That loan comes up for renewal in 2019. So I thought this is a really timely time to tell the story. And the thing is, you could do it in a documentary format, but it'll, you can have so much more fun. Yeah, you can have a lot of fun with a film. With film. So with we're working film. with Michael Cray, who was Oscar nominated for a short film a few years ago. He's our writer, and mm-hmm. he's Oscar nominated for a short film a few years ago called The Crush. It's mm-hmm. a really, really nice film. He's a really knack for humour. He's very good. Um, and he's managed to you know, bring these two characters to life. Um, and um, and that's a film I'm at the moment. You know, We're talking about rejection. That's a film at the moment I'm really trying to get funding for, You know, get off the ground. Um, uh, that's one of my projects and then I think that's another two years at least from getting funding so that means it's like three, four years away from being made mm. hopefully by the time it's made the paintings actually will be either li- living in Dublin or they'll have resolved the issue mm. even better if they're not because there'll be lovely publicity to <laughs> hang this film on yeah. um, <clears throat> uh, the other project I'm working with a writer from Blackburn called Bernard O'Toole who you probably haven't heard of yet but you will have he will in the future he's a fantastic writer um, he's already won an award for as a uh, for a short film he made as an up and coming scriptwriter. Um, although he's my vintage, he's in his forties, so you know he's up and coming in his forties. There's hope for us yet, guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Always like to hear that kind of story. Up and coming in his forties. Uh, yeah, and I'm working with him on a on a on a on a on a, on a, on a film uh, on a on a on a on a screenplay called Grace. Uh, it's set in. It's a fantastic story. It's a it's a uh, it's a, a contemporary story set in the present day. It's a kind of unusual, it's a dysfunctional love story. It's set against the backdrop of Britain's criminal underworld. And it's about two individuals, um, a really strong female character who is um, has become wrapped up in, 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 in the underworld and is trying to escape that world. Mm. Um, and a kind of very dysfunctional guy who has basically trying to switch out of life. He lost his long-term partner. He switched out of life. He's fallen into debt and he owes money to a gangster figure. And the two of them kind of find each other and they go on the run to escape their, their, escape their present and their past to some extent. And so it's a kind of very dysfunctional love story. It's not a traditional love story. They, you know, he's in love with a dead person. She is trying to 
find her way back to nor- normal life and she kind of sees him as a way of helping her get out of this life mm. but he's he really needs her more than she needs him and what she's really trying to do is trying to find a long lost child mm. um, that she, she gave up for adoption when she was younger you know and it's a kind of really beautiful British story it's, it's, it's kind of a real realistic story um, uh, that's set in a pla- uh, place where stories are rarely told it's set in Stoke you know, but mm. uh, that's what I'm hoping to get off the ground next. That, and I think that's, you know, I'm looking probably in the next year, hoping to get that green lit and to go into production. It's not a big budget. Unlike our Tate robbery story, which is like 2.5 million. This right. is like something that can be made for under 500k. Um, it's kind of, it's a brilliantly written script. It's, it's one of the best scripts I've ever read. And it's actually got better with each draft. I mean, I read, I read quite an advanced draft. It, it was given to me by a producer. I know, I said, look, you like dark stories read this you will really like and then mm. I met Bernard and we just clicked immediately we got on really well and, and, and he, I said look this is great but you need to make this 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 change he's done it and, and then we sent it off to script editors to read they came back saying we recommend you know we really like this script we think it's got great potential it's like a UK version of Manchester by the Sea mm. but we suggest you do this 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 and Bernard's just be basically honing the script we're about 90% there I think we're probably you know another two drafts will be ready to send out to casting and it's the kind of film where if you're a good British actor or actress, you'd want to play the role of Alison or Sam, the two central characters, because mm. it's, it's such a there's such different roles to the normal role. Particularly if you're a woman, women unfortunately women's roles generally are you know girlfriend in feature films in the UK in particular they're like girlfriend, mm. wife, prostitute. You know what I mean? And mm. this Alison role is a much more deeper character. Like she's she's the linchpin of the film. She's a very well thought out character. So that's where I am next. It's the next project. That's where I'm basically going to spend the next probably six months pushing hard trying to uh, get that off the ground and get get that moving and um, I have a potential producer I'm, I can't mention any names because mm. I haven't confirmed it, but I have a potential producer working with me on this as well who seems very interested in the story um, and hopefully Touch Wood will come back and we'll go and make it you know well, good luck with the next stages of those two um, one final question about the, the filmmaking before we just do the last uh, couple of questions uh, how did your dad's career in filmmaking pan out? How is it panning out? He's a very, he's become a very successful documentary producer. Actually, um, he's followed my coattails. Obviously, I pulled yeah. him along. <laughs> Without me, he'd be nothing. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, he's a very successful uh, documentary producer, um, and he's getting a stage now where he's. I think he's going to have a second retirement, though. I think he's right. decided. You know what? I've done. I've done two careers. Not many people get to do be successful in two careers. No. You know, and he's worked like a lot of the stuff he's done has gone on and won awards. Um, not just the stuff made with me, but naturally enough. <laughs> uh, but he has, like, you know, he's been, he's been, they've been highly successful. And they've won a lot of awards. Um, but he's taken a step back from it all now. He's kind of retiring from it. But he's still, the great thing is he's, his understanding, what's really interesting is his understanding of business is invaluable. And his understanding of media and business, you know, you just don't get, you don't get the experience he had in business with anyone else in this industry normally. You know, you don't have 20 years working in building a business up from mm. scratch. And then being able to take that and, and, under, and learn when he was in his 50s the media business mm. and then you know turned that into a successful business as well you know what I mean fascinating that you've had these sort of parallel careers since that yeah. time when you took that idea to him yeah that's amazing um, just three questions then that I'm asking everyone who comes on just these three questions um, the first one is do you have like a a routine a daily routine or a, a set of circumstances where you feel like you do you need to be set up to do your best work so in terms of say writing or time of day we've talked a bit about when you're working late last night but is there a set of circumstances where you feel most comfortable to do your work no no because cause 
the days are so different. So I can mm. be like, you know, I could be directing when I'm directing, when I'm shooting, right? When I'm filming, I could be up at six in the morning on set for seven filming for 12 hours. Okay. When I'm in edits, I generally like to let the editor work away for in the morning and then we make changes. So I probably don't pop into the edit till 10 o'clock. I only mm. work for a few hours in the edit and I leave, make my changes, see what make changes, leave and come back the next day. When I'm at home, when I'm working from home writing, I usually get the kids to school, you know, go for a long run. I don't start work till like 10 o'clock. And I, so if, if I've something major to do, like last night, I worked from 10 to like two in the morning. Well, one in the morning. So uh, if it's something major, I look for like 10 till one in the morning. But if it's not, if it's just kind of <coughs> sending emails, following up on pitches and following up on, you know, I've sent, you know, sent say, a pitch off to a broadcaster. I've sent a producer a script to read. You know, it could be finished by four, mm-hmm. three or four. Mm-hmm. And there's no, you know, and that's, so it, it, it varies from day to day. You know what I mean? I I, I am. And what I like to do when I've got that kind of spare time is hunt new ideas, mm. you know? So I, I, I always spend a lot of time just trawling through, you know, um, either going into the library and just going through history magazines, old copies of history magazines, mm. see is there a story that hasn't been told that maybe someone was missed. Mm. I do a lot of research online, Wikipedia, you know, just following links on Wikipedia yeah. to see what happens. <coughs> so yeah, no, there's no set routine to my day. It changes because the nature of the business is that it changes depending on what I'm doing, mm. what stage of production I'm in. You can't have a routine. You mentioned going for a long run then if you're doing stuff at home. Is that something that you find is a useful tool in terms of sort of creativity or do you, do you come yeah. up with ideas on runs or is that really just to sort of clear no, your head? I come up with ideas on runs. Actually, funny enough, I have a, 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 a the drama I'm hoping to get development funding for to write a script for and that all came about over a period of week I was training for the Great North Run in, in, in Newcastle and that literally came from doing the Great North Runs I planned out the story in my runs mm. and I, by the time I got home from the run I'd have my shower and I'd type up what I'd, how I'd figured out right. problems in the plot and stuff like that so <clears throat> I find running really creative I, I really enjoy it I just put my headphones on and just run um, is that music you listen to? Or? yeah music yeah, yeah I just put music on and just run um, so yeah, no, I find running's a really good thing, and I try and run like even when I'm got like early starts, I try and run before shoot or at the end of after shoot because I find it just really. So you try really and build helps. that into the wherever you are. Yeah, yeah, wherever okay. I am, I try to run. Yeah, Fine. and yeah, so that's interesting. So that that is, a, I guess, a bit of a routine that you have that you try and fill that. You well, try I try and run. Put that in. Yeah, yeah. I try and run. Yeah, not yeah, so it's not day. a strict routine, but it's something it's not that you try routine. and do. No, 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 no. Um, any just briefly a favorite running album. What songs? Crikey, that's a good one. I like the back room by the editors. It sounds like a weird one to run to, but <laughs> I really like it. I really like running to it, you know? I, I don't know that, actually. I'll, to, I'll listen to that. Um, second one. When you look back at everything, so this could be filmmaking, but it could also be the journalism stuff, you know, whatever you, whatever we're talking about, anything that you've done over the years. What's the sort of thing when you think back over everything that you feel sort of most proud of? The one thing that you did or event that happened it doesn't have to be the most sort of lucrative yeah. or anything like that it's you know what was the thing that you really when you look back you really feel that you did it because my wife would kill me if i don't say this my three children <laughs> yeah. but from a creative level yeah uh, a terrible beauty which was the docudrama about the 1916 rising which came out of uh, an idea by telling the story of the 1916 easter rising in dublin through the eyes of the british soldiers who were sent to dublin to put down the rising so essentially you know these are guys sent to put down a rising in the second city of the British Empire. Dublin was part of the British Empire. Britain was at war. There were 
I think that, I think there are 140,000 Irish men fighting on the Western Front in Irish regiments of the British Army. So, you know, the Irish Ranger, the Connacht Rangers, the Dublin Fusiliers, you know, people like that. Uh, uh, less than 1,400, so the 1,400, sorry, let me correct myself, less than 1,600, so 1,600 rebels uh, go out and on Easter Monday, and after six days, Dublin looks like Eep. Mm. You know what I mean? It's mm. trashed, it's destroyed. So I wanted to tell a story from a very different perspective, and I, and, and I pitched that to the BBC, and they were really interested um, to, uh, as of doing a time watch. But we needed a co-production partner, so I went to TG Cahar, TG4, it's an Irish language channel, and I got talking to Chris Yenner, and he said, like, you know, I love the idea of not featuring any of the leading rebels, but he said, why don't we make sure we also feature the Irish, ordinary Irish soldier as well? And that led to 18 months of research where I basically went into old military archives, dug out any first-hand accounts I could find, and then created this 90-minute feature doc. 60 mm. minutes of it is pure drama, and then 30 minutes are talking head experts and archive explaining the context of what you're seeing. Mm. <coughs> and it's all based on first-hand accounts, but I obviously had to write scenes and write moments between my central characters, and I chose my characters. Um, and it's bilingual; it's in Irish and English, and mm. it's sold all over the world. It's done; it's won; it's won awards all over the world. It's been nominated for awards. The only place it hasn't been only television channel has never screened it was the BBC. Apparently, mm. um, British audiences don't want to watch Irish Irish language and subtitles. Uh, but it's sold to Australia, sold in the United States, sold mm. everywhere, and uh, sold really well. But it's also the film. I can never watch my own films. Um, I have watched it once all the way through, and it was the most uncomfortable experience I've ever done, had. I had to because it was the premiere at the um, Jameson Dublin International Film Festival, and they insisted that the director sat there and had a seat right in the middle where I, of the of the auditorium where I couldn't escape. Um, and my wife was sitting beside me, and she was like, "God, I hate, that was terrible to watch with you because you just are so <laughs> fidgety." We're like, "Why? Why are you so?" Because I know unhappy. things I want to fix. Right. Yeah. I can see things that I need to fix, and I, I, that's a because eventually you have to deliver a film. Mm. You know, you can't just keep messing with it. You do it. as a director, you would be constantly changing yeah. it. So uh, there's always things I want to change and fix. But I'm proud of it because it is actually a brilliant story done on an incredibly tight budget. The BBC pulled out. I think don't think they were too keen with the Irish language side of it. I don't know. I'm not sure. Like, I shouldn't say that actually. The BBC pulled out. Commission editor changed, and the new commission editor came in. Didn't want to continue it. Um, so we had to. We had funding from Ireland. Um, um, so we had basically. I think we had four hundred thousand euros. So about three hundred at the, that. And the money as it was pre Brexit, uh, three hundred thirty thousand sterling. Hmm. And we created a ninety minute feature doc with sixty minutes of drama. That would normally cost over a million. I've done docudramas, hmm. you know, so uh, uh, similar scale and scope that would have cost over a million and we brought we made that for 400,000 euros we were only 10,000 10, over in the end and we managed to get that back to sales and I'm incredibly proud of what we did what we produced on such a tight budget mm -hmm. with some incredible and because the story was so strong we got some incredible actors to play roles like we had Hugh O'Connor who you know he's he was in My Left Foot he was Oscar, he was I think he's been Oscar nominated he's like you know he's a really significant figure and he's BAFTA mm. nominated so we had Hugh O'Connor who's BAFTA nominated actor and he played a role and we got some really you know Owen 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 McDonnell who's um, you know who's in uh, My Mother and Other Animals and you know he's a really established actor who came in and played roles on it because the story was so good mm. so I'm fiercely proud of that because of what we achieved at such a low budget and what we delivered you know and anyone, everyone who's seen it who is in the industry can't believe we made it at that kind of hmm. budget so that's 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 probably my a terrible beauty is my, my, my proudest achievement purely because it was such a struggle to make it took us three years to get off the ground four years in total to make it's a, uh, it's and it's, it's 
it's done really well internationally. It's done really well. I mean, we screened in uh, Nottingham. Um, one of the regiments who came over to Ireland was in the Sherwood Foresters and Nottingham, uh, Nottingham and Derbyshire Regiment. And uh, we screened in Nottingham with a huge amount of um, ex-Sherwood Foresters turn up and they said that it was very fair and even in their portrayal. I mean, mm. to be honest with you, it's almost a reprieve of the battles in Dublin were almost at times a reprieve of what was happening in reprise of what was happening in the Western Front where it was literally you know lines being led by donkeys literally they were mm. you know blowing a whistle and charging forward and the Irish rebels even though there was only 1600 of them they were well barricaded in to the locations they took so the guys would just charge forward and get cut down and charge forward and get cut down you know so it was a, you know it, there was definite parallels and I think they appreciated that we it was a very even handed because the danger when you're doing something like that as an Irishman mm. is that you can lionise the rebels but we try to keep it even both sides you know mm. it's fascinating final question what are you consuming like creatively right now so whether that's a, a book or music or you know a, something on tv yeah. or a film that you've seen just very recently what what got you re what are you excited about or have you got excited about very recently um the last the last thing i got really excited about is a film on Amazon Prime called uh, Hell or High Water which stars Chris Pine and it's a, it's a throwback to those kind of, the kind of feature films they used to make in Hollywood in the 1970s 80s and early 90s you know really clever dramas and it's about two brothers who basically are going on a crime spree in 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 um, in East Texas um uh, and it's a really, really intelligent, clever film. Beautifully shot, really well told. It's kind of inspired me for how I'm going to make Grace to some extent. Mm -hmm. um, that that just when I saw it, I went, "Wow, what a great film!" That really inspired me. And then the other, um, I recently saw um, a film on Netflix, which no, I'll tell I sorry, I initially saw a film that was on Amazon Prime as well called A Date for Mad Mary, which mm -hmm. is a really simple story about a, a girl who's come out of prison whose best friend is getting married and uh, she wants to find someone to co take to the wedding with her. And it's really, really... And it's about basically friendship falling apart. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think the best stories are about, you know, there's always a great underlying story, you know, mm. you know, that may be a crime film, but actually that, that you know, the... Um, the um, Tell Her High Water, the context is crime, but actually really it's about family. So, mm. you know, it's about brothers. It's about dysfunctional families. A Day for Mary seems like a comedy, but actually what it's about is about loneliness and finding, trying to find your place in the world. I'll check those out. Yeah. Keith, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Enjoyed it. Thanks, Guy. <laughs>